away you go. Now it comes time to actually build it. I'm always thinking about the next thing, not what happened in the past. You want to see someone breaking the mold? We are breaking every possible traffic law. Welcome back to Oil and Whiskey with Roadster Shop, an ironclad original. We are going to delve into part two of the history of the Roadster Shop. We got a uh, got a little off topic there on uh, the last episode, and I think uh, somebody snuck in a couple more whiskeys than we were supposed to be drinking. Yeah, I think somebody put some alcohol in that or in our bourbon. <laughs> somebody <laughs> did. Uh, yeah, we kind of got to the uh, Innovator Nova, and it seems like we kind of got a little off topic there, and so we need to kind of pick up from uh, from where we were at. Sure. So this will be uh, part two of the history of Roadster Shop. Um, we're also going to do On the Gas, where we're going to highlight a company, individual, manufacturer, shop that's really had their foot on the gas, has kind of caught our eye or made us go, huh. <laughs> Make them say, uh, uh. Uh. So, so picking up where we left off, we, we kind of, I guess that's a good stopping point because that's kind of the starting point, I'd say, really for where the Roadster Shop took off as the company that we are today. Um, I think that was probably like shedding our skin shortly after the, uh, the innovator and we really came into like what we wanted to be and what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And it, I guess that it kind of all started with the, the suspension. You know, we, we talked about that a little bit. So after developing all that, it was, uh, I mean, the next, next thing in line is how do you produce it and how do you integrate it into multiple chassis designs and where do you go with the, the chassis lineup to elevate it from where it was at? Because it was, not to say that it was like low tech or certainly not low quality. I mean, it was, it was, I guess I would have looked at the prior chassis more as like artwork and hand sculptures. Yeah. It was kind of a hot rod way of building chassis, just focused on what was cool, making it artistic, doing a lot of stuff by hand, um, you know, relying on skill instead of, uh, technology and engineering. Yeah. Was yeah. that one of the major challenges? I mean, obviously you weren't, you you had your mind on you know that obviously this is going to be something but at that yeah. point it was about that product and making it better so you were, really weren't thinking exactly about mass producing or what volume would be so as volume kind of came in and you realized that well this is really something now we've got to figure out is was that the challenge of like well how do we do it like a lot of them i think that was kind of the next challenge we uh we had to knock off the list we i think accomplished everything we had wanted to on the car build side um, and now kind of developing a name for the chassis and saw that as the scalable side of the business, a lot more demand, a lot more room to grow with that. And we just kept wanting to make that better. I think we had a, a really badass top of the line product and now we need to get it out to the masses and figure out how to produce it. It was a lot of, uh, looking at how to make it better, how to make it faster, how to make it a lot more repeatable, how to expand the offerings across different platforms, different cars, and then it just kind of evolved from there. Yeah, I think that was like the point where we hung up the plumb bob and the tape measure or traded it in for a ferro arm. And, you know, I put my notes away and they went from, you know, tons of hand sketch drawings and blueprints and schematics and, you know, stacks and stacks of binders to diving into SolidWorks 
and uh, going to the next level and taking on dedicated engineer. And I, I think I touched on that before that like I'm always a firm believer in to elevate the company and even elevate yourself just to surround yourself by people who are better than you, people who bring skills to the table. Um, you know, one person can only develop such a skill set. I mean, if you, you certainly there's some super talented people out there that can can do it all, but you need an army, you know, an army of good soldiers to do it at this level. So the kind of the timing was right. The pieces really fell in the right places. We, I think we started throwing some ads out there looking for, uh, looking to build an engineering staff and, uh, a young, talented chipper gentleman walked through the door by the name in a of suit. Yeah. That's where I was going with that <laughs> by the name of Michael O'Brien. So I hope he's listening to this because we're so used to guys walking in with uh, like you know, Carhartt jackets and torn up jeans and their welding helmet for their interviews. Well, Michael Bryan showed up and I think it was like a three piece suit. You know, I mean, it was it was legit. Yeah, he looked sharp. He looked good. Most of the people in the in the shop, like they they were concerned. Like, is, are we selling the shop? Is this a guy? Like, is this somebody coming? In to <laughs> we have a banker coming yeah, in. A bank? What's what's going on? Well, he's gonna love this. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> so that was young Michael Bryan, but uh, turned it. I mean, instantly that was like such a change in direction for the company. And uh, I think at that point we really started putting. Not that we like took focus away from building cars and the design work there, but we definitely put a tremendous amount of energy into developing the chassis lineup. So from there, like I'd said earlier, we had a really good proven platform and now it was time to just take it to the next level from an engineering standpoint and an organization standpoint more than anything. Um, the organization was just key in being able to do it in volume. And uh, just, I'd say a couple of years earlier, we had started building up a little equipment in the shop. So gone were the days of the giant table stacked full of steel and nibblers because we, we probably ran through broken enough like feet and bits off nibblers over like that 10 year period of time that we probably could have bought a Trump laser. But uh, <laughs> we were a little, a little scared of the technology, but the, the best thing to do was just dive in. So we, we bought a, uh, at the time it was fairly cutting edge. It was a, like a high definition multicam, 20 foot long plasma table. And that's when we started uh, kind of tying the two together. The engineering went you know, hand in hand with that. Now we, we weren't pulling big templates off the wall. We were designing frame rails and SolidWorks, breaking them down into flat sheets. And you could really start cranking stuff out. And you're able to really step up the repeatability, the accuracy, um, making them quicker, more efficient, uh, just using the technology for what it was intended for, I guess. Yeah. It, I think that was like, it was an awesome tool for a lot of things. It made like product development really good because you could take, again, you're taking the tape measure out of the equation where when it came to like designing like new suspension platforms, it, working off of just a solid chassis table, you start designing your fixtures in CAD and cutting out all your parts and pieces. And now you've got a really good baseline. You can start tabbing things together and it just gives you kind of a head start and takes a little bit of the guesswork and a little bit of the human error out of it and lets you move quicker. So I th so you're at the point now, so you've got, you kind of 
you know, we're, we're speed warping, you know, warp speed through this stuff. But I mean, you've kind of started to get into the the mass production and putting the correct team in place, correct technology. You got the plasma table. We're running out. You're running frame rails there. And then stuff starts getting a little bit more organized. But then I know you both well enough to know that the mind starts rolling at that point instantly of like, well, shit, if we can do this, then we can do this. And if we can do this, then we can do this. So you're, you're already thinking past, you know, the next couple of products. So where does your mind start going there from the fast track uh, design and the IRS? And, you know, obviously it's some in platforms like, okay, we need to hit these platforms, hit these platforms. Um, but then are you thinking other directions there with, you know, multiple chassis lines or where, where does that come into play? You know, I think still at that time, this was before we had built the new chassis shop. So at that time we were, it was like some growing pains. You know, we were super focused on like getting past that point in time where so much was coming out of like my head and Phil's head. It was helping every single guy in in the chassis shop because like I'm the guy with the tribal knowledge of I know this oil pan is going to create a clearance issue here. Or I know these Hemi's have a an oil filter adapter that's going to hit this, and these headers are going to do this, and this is and so many things that it was. It's just such like a massive catalog of parts and components that we're trying to do our best to to do basically the the, the thing that we do now. But this was still that portion was like pre technology. It was it had to get out of your head. And yeah, off so, of paper. So I got to organize all that. Yeah, because it's just like <laughs> mind dumps, and you know, and how many and, street rod chassis at this point is that? That's still a good bit of what you're building at this point, right? Yeah, we're still doing a pretty decent amount. It kind of got to 50 50 street rods and muscle cars and 50s, 60s cars. And we were still taking on like quite a few of the fairly elaborate custom chassis that were more street rod based at that point in time. So you know, a little distracted by, by some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, I think it was that, that stuff just steadily grew and we were still like, I'd say just super focused on the quality of the product. You know, we, we had a decent little product line at that point and it, uh, got to the point where, you know, you just, we were just tripping over ourselves. The, there wasn't massive growth, but there was just steady growth every year. I mean, what do you think we were doing back in that era Volume wise, probably two, three hundred chassis a year. Just kind of about space wise, where we're now completely out, and we were hesitant on on moving forward. What we were going to do, build an addition, find a new building. Um, I think we probably kicked it around for a year or two. Yep. Not sure if it was the right move to make. Um, just kind of didn't want to get out in front of our skis. Um, didn't want to bite off more than we can chew, but. In the meantime, we kind of kept coming up with new products and expanding the, uh, you know, the whole spectrum of what we were offering. And I think a lot of that, like you mentioned earlier, what was our vision? Um, a lot of it was more reaction than being proactive, um, looking at what the industry was doing, the direction it was going, what our customers wanted was kind of the big thing. Um, so we started with the fast track, which was our performance-based pro touring suspension. That was all the rage at the time, but then... We had a lot of guys that we were building Tri-5 uh, Chevy chassis for, a lot of early pickup chassis. And I think we were still using another company's front suspension for a little bit. Yep. But the fast track wasn't really suited for that type of car build. So um, those guys wanted more of a, a cruiser, still using something that was more of a 
smaller brake package. You can get a 15-inch wheel on it, narrower track width because the cars were narrower. Um, so we saw the need to to build a higher-end, revolutionary, you know, kind of street ride 50s, 60s cruiser suspension. And that's kind of where the Revo came from. Um, yeah, I forgot. There's so much has happened. We've done so much. I actually completely forgot about that whole that whole deal, but that, uh, it's kind of what I was like softballing. I'm always thinking about the next thing, you know, not what, not what happened in the past, but that windshield's bigger than the rear view mirror. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Good. But that, uh, yeah, the Revo, like, like Phil said, that was, I think most of our stuff, he says it's reactionary, which is hundred percent right. Like we reacted to, there was nothing out there that was satisfying us. There's nothing out there that was, dependable or durable or you had you either had like like phil said the fast track that was kind of like an all-out performer which drives phenomenally well but you also have limitations to wheel size and things like that or you have your like very entry level kind of budget street rod stuff that's been around for 30 40 years so we uh you know kind of looked at it through like the fresh set of eyes that we always look at things and saw like we just we wanted to develop something that would perform well like there, what why does everything that is mustang two based have to suck you know and that's that's kind of how we look like everybody has built a mustang two front end i mean there's yeah. countless of them out there they're all the same thin small diameter tubing that bends shitty bushings that wear out we had routinely we'd replace bushings before we even got cars on the road control arms that were bent before cars got on the road yeah um, jack stands and just shop rash would do more damage to a car in like six months than what our current bushings can take in like 16 years and that was again it's like why why obviously it's you know for one a lot of people just knock stuff off that's that's just easy. do it the that's, same that's way everybody else way. has been doing it's it. very yeah. simple to do that we could have done that in an afternoon and been in business and been more profitable, um, probably not grown to the scale that we are because you wouldn't build the following that, that, that we have. So we, again, looked at that, like, let's build, we know we want to use a Mustang spindle because that's like the commonality there is that every aftermarket brake fits it. It fits, we know we could package around like a 15 inch wheel, a 17 inch wheel, and uh, we weren't looking to get into the brake business. So that's what we started with, but you don't have to put the control arms and then the same that doesn't mean like the geometry has to be terrible so outside of you know you're set with the kingpin inclination and you've got the ball joint spread you don't have to use one long single through bolt for your lower control yeah, you no. do not so that means you don't have to remove your radiator or your body to <laughs> to do an alignment to, to do an alignment so that was actually a big thing that sparked a lot of it um again learning from examples of what we didn't like in the past and things we had issues with but yeah. um you know we were talking about what we're going to do with this thing and jerking with the idea you got to put it on eccentrics. Nobody in the industry has done that. It's what's on all new cars. It'd be again, pretty revolutionary for the street ride industry. We started looking into it and figured out a way to make that happen. And, and it, they all like, it, it all comes from most of these things derived from bad experiences or like, I, I feel like I'm just beating the, the dead horse with the learning experience thing. Well, you, you, always, you always, you do, you learn more from a loss than you do from a win. I, I can, I can remember that. Like one of the driving factors in doing that was that we were at a super Chevy shootout with a competitor of ours, a suspension manufacturer. 
and he was out there by himself. He no longer owns the company. So, you know, we could, we could talk a little freely about this, but, uh, it, we destroyed him. Like, I mean, it was like, we were out there with a Chevelle and he had a first gen Camaro and it was like, I mean, just, there was no competition. So he shows that, you know, no tools, no anything, and decide like, oh, I got to put camber in this car because putting camber in the car is going to shave what fifteen seconds off his autocross <laughs> time. So he's struggling. He's trying to get this, like you say, it's a, what, a two foot long bolt. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, that's exaggerated. It's long. It's a yeah. long bolt. And so I poor guy struggles. So I'm over there helping like the competition pull this massive bolt out and you know, do a kind of a rough alignment right there on the track. And you're unbolting things because you get like a power steering reservoir or an overflow or something in your way. So all that was like, dude, you don't want to do that. Like if I want to set an alignment, especially on stuff that's like cruiser type, I know if it's going under tri five, well, tri five guys build nice stuff generally. Like they're a little bit more showy than a lot of the muscle cars. They detail them out really well. So I don't want to be leaning over the fender and like, pounding on bolts to get them out. So we did, you know, we put eccentrics in it and uh, didn't want to deal with like the popping a sway bar like on after the fact and using a super thin DOM bar. So also wanted it all integrated so that it was all like in a cradle so that it could be sold, it could be integrated and it could be, now we've got a little bit more of the production mindset. Like I want this thing a pod so that I don't want to compromise anything, but I want the fabricators to be able to just pull it off the shelf. I know I want to build it in a different department, drop it into the chassis and have like a super badass piece that's ready to go. So some of these things just kind of turned into like what I would consider kind of innovative products. There's a, a one inch spline sway bar that kind of packages like almost right through the cross member. There's a little like kind of sub tubular cross member that comes off the back. And then that just, uh, it turned into a great product for us. And we, then narrowed it up into a narrow track version of it. And it started just fitting basically like it was the missing link for all the stuff that the fast track couldn't accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just touch on the past experience thing. I mean, with all the experience of building cars, I mean, we know, I know we played with upper shock mount location and control arm, control arm location to make sure that you can get motors in there. You can get headers in there, steering rack and sway bar location. So the oil pan didn't hit. So we can get the motors nice and low, have maximized the hood clearance that there's so many things from the car building side that carry over into it, that if we had never built the cars, you would look right past and have oh, no idea. Any of that stuff was a 100%. concern. Oh, and you'd have a complete, yeah, you'd have a completely different attitude towards it. I mean, cause the control arm and the shock mount would, would live where it, best makes most sense you know it's and, easiest and, to build yeah, yeah. And never even think and then and your attitude towards it would just be different too because you wouldn't i look at it from building cars and building chassis we all we always kind of have the customers back and versus being like well you don't know what you're talking about we built it that way so figure it out you know but you know that a header has to go a certain place you know that you right. know parts of the engine are not going to change you can't just be like Hard well to narrow up figure a block. it out yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think well, that's an interesting talking point because I think that kind of like moves into the next, the next segment as we we developed some great suspension cradles and had a really good product line, but like you said, like the off the shelf parts packaging a header will get like now things are changing the landscape's changing a little bit. The ZZ4s, the 355 horsepower GM crate motors are kind of a thing of the past, and all of a sudden now it's like 
everything's getting tabbed with LS mounts. And they're pretty big horsepower LS motors. So guys are wanting a larger tube header, more of a full length header. And as we saw that, like, you couldn't go to your name brands and a, a block hugger that you know fits the suspension cradles wasn't such an option anymore. So we started working with companies to develop specific components that would fit those chassis and the fast track primarily. I mean, that was where we started like accessorizing the chassis a little bit. You know, now you had a, uh, a stainless long tube header kit that went along with them. Um, as we were building cars, we were coming out with some other like parts and pieces that were, you, they're repeatable. So like firewall. Solving our problems and solving the customer's problems at the same time. Um, yeah. Headers, gas tanks, radiator modules, exhaust mounts, just little things that we needed and felt there was a market for. Well, as you as you learned how to be more productive and mass produced on the chassis side, you start taking those little things and, and bits of knowledge that you can apply on the car build side where you start looking at like, well, how can we be you know, a little bit more efficient. Obviously, you know, custom cars, everyone's a little bit different, but as you're doing enough of them, I mean, 69 Camaro is a 69 Camaro. If it's getting close to the same wheels and tires and you're mini tubbing in the same way every time, or you're putting the same inner fenders in it. So then it's, it's interesting to watch, like learn a little bit over here and then kind of get it going. You're like, Oh, well shit, we need to apply the same kind of thing over here on the, on the car build side of things. And then those, those products are always been internal problem solvers. Like you're talking about, you know, like, well, shit, we don't have to build these interfenders every single time. Let's, you know, let's build a set. Let's make a mold. Let's have these done. And now it's like, well, shit, we actually could sell these when we sell the chassis too. Right. It's, the back and forth is something that's interesting to me that I think a lot of people don't realize yeah. how it, how it kind of goes, you know? hundred percent. They think we're probably a lot smarter than really hard. And it's just like, <laughs> it was just all a master just, plan. Just let, just let them think that there was yeah. a business plan. It was, you know, I think with that, <laughs> we don't look like way too far into the future. I think you got to like look, you got to look into the immediate future. You can't have these massive projections, yeah, these massive pl plans of this, this product line. And then I'm going to roll this out in like Q4 of like 20. Cause things will change it's, before you get there. It's a fast moving industry and you have to be ahead of the curve, but you've got to just, you have to react and you have to move quickly, I think is, is what you need to do. And that's, that's, I think, what happened once we got into the the new chassis shop. You know, as we we realized we needed the space, and we thought that the space was just going to be to make us more efficient and to kind of spread out and do things just more professionally. Let the guys, you know, we had overhead cranes, and we really spent a lot of time outfitting it to just make everybody's job easier and make it flow really well. But, you know, I will say that one thing about us is that like if you give if you give us the tools and the space like we're gonna we're gonna fill it you know so <laughs> if you give me a hundred thousand square feet you know i'm gonna fill that up and if if i've got a a couple of press breaks well I'll keep them busy all the time there's nothing's gonna ever sit and i think that's that's probably what happened once we got into that shop you know we started thinking we're like okay this is running very smoothly now from a production standpoint and guess what like that starts telling you that now you have more capacity so what do you do with capacity when you're like already 
selling and building as many chassis as you can, as you know, as are ordered, you need more product lines. You need to develop something new. Like that was again the next big big jump off step right there. We were looking at you know we had the fast track, we had the Revo, both were really kind of the the higher end from a you know price point um, of what was going on in the industry, and we were looking at everything and like there's guys buying all these bolt-on control arms and bolt-on four-bar kits and front subframes and, you know, just a, a standalone IFS and trying to put it into a chassis and figure that's probably three-quarters of the market that we're not even touching. Yep. Um, so we we kind of went to the drawing board and looked at what our next step would be to, to reach out and kind of capture that part of the market as well. Um, we didn't really want to get into the individual suspension components um, didn't think there was enough advantage there. Again, just kind of, if we're going to build something that's got to be the best, it's got to be all in. Um, I know me and you talked about it a bunch. We'll, we'll do bolt-on control arm kits. We'll do sway bar kits. And I don't think you can make enough of an improvement based on the stock geometry that was there to, to make it worthwhile. Um, you could be cranking out control arms, but just didn't feel like it was the right fit for us. It wasn't a product we wanted to, to build. Yeah, I think we have a hard time like getting behind something that we're not real passionate about. And that was one of those things. It's hard to look at. There's some great manufacturers out there, and there's no reason not to buy their products if you want those bolt-ons. But I struggle with being handcuffed. You don't want to put, you know, yeah, in your constraints. Yeah, of you're, the, you're constrained to the factory mounting point. Like simply put, that control arm has to bolt into the existing holes. You can are, make it out of a lot of different materials, but you haven't changed. And you want to put a huge smile on a customer's face, not a small smile. And I think that's the biggest difference on everything that I've seen from you guys and we talk about you know new products coming down the line it's always been you know much like we talked about your your, your dad's you know influence was no if you're going to do it go big you know so if you're going to try to do something to solve a problem and make a customer happy make him really fucking happy right yeah, it's, instead of being like oh I mean it's okay it's <laughs> yeah. pretty good you know yeah, yeah and this was we, we kind of like worked backwards on this from a price point and then just tip. This was a, an exercise that was a little different than what we were used to because, you know, typically we just build the most bitching thing that we could possibly build and then like figure out what it costs. And then like, if you got to back out a few things to, to bring that down to a reasonable level, then so be it. But so this, you've got, you've got, you've got an idea where you want to be price point wise. Yep. You know that you're not going to sacrifice quality. Yep. You know, you're going to solve problems with it or it's not worth doing you've already got fast track that lives over here and you've got revo that lives over here you know fast track picks up where the revo left leaves off you know so you're kind of looking at this is like okay where do we put something in that's like right in front of revo but what do we do that's that's where your mindset is, is how do we do something like this at this price point without yep. sacrificing quality yep yeah i think we looked at our existing product and it was just insanely labor intensive to to build these fast tracks and and revo chassis we'd have 60 hours in, in building a set of frame rails before we even, you know, touch the chassis and then fabricating all these crazy shapes for center cross members and really elaborate front cross members that, again, we did because we wanted like cool formed flowing shapes and we wanted the visual appeal. And we started looking at a lot of our competitors and we're like, well, shit, if we could build them like that, we'd be <laughs> cranking them out and doing well, for a fraction of the price. It was but, unfair. Like it, to me, it was, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, this is unfair to the customers. You know, we're competing for years on a price point with other manufacturers, and we're trying to take this super high-end product 
that's wildly labor intensive and bring the price way down to stay competitive from a price point to guys that are cranking these things out like and no disrespect to their products but we might have 200 hours start to finish in one chassis and they might have 20 hours so i'm saying it's one of two things it's either like robbery you know <laughs> their their profit margins are through the roof and i mean we're we're profitable on them but nowhere near the level that they are so i went into it with the mindset of like okay let's just be fair with the with the customer let's we could deliver something that's awesome and do it at a reasonable price point that i know i can bring it in cheaper than what they are and i can be like hyper focused on the engineering portion of it and just kind of not dumb down but cut down some of the fabrication time take some of the like sex appeal out of the brackets and things like that but have a chassis that's just super functional super durable and do it for the price of bolting on components to your entire vehicle and that's when the spec chassis lineup was born so i'd say i mean out of of all our chassis what's the most labor intensive thing that we have to do on every one of them building frame rails and locating all the components on it yeah the the frame rails are i mean still to this day other than laser cutting and we still do them the same way it's four pieces of of plate steel hand formed corner welded and ground and it's I mean, they're sculptures. Some of them, like, you just want to stand them. I want to stick them in the ground in my yard and have them sticking up because they're they're sexy and curvy looking, but it is a massive undertaking and takes so much skill. Definitely some to of do the it. unsung heroes of the roadster shop is the a- frame rail Absolutely. Shop so we didn't want to mandrel bend them because, you know, everybody's... That's what everyone was doing. And- every, everybody's mandrel bending their rails, and I'm not a big fan of it. You know, you, you, you kind of, you know, you... You thin out the metal on the top, regardless of like who's doing it or how you're doing it. You always end up with some sort of wrinkles in the material, and you're super limited as to what you can do with back-to-back bends, radius profiles. Uh, you got to start splicing all sorts of different tubes and things together if you wanted. And then it becomes labor-intensive. So I happen to be on one of my sleepless nights, you know, poking around YouTube. I come across. A video. You know, at that time, I was looking for. I knew we, I wanted to upgrade to a to a laser from a plasma table. Anyway, so I'm I'm looking at a bunch of equipment and, and machinery, and I see this one like random video, and I think it was like in a foreign language, and I'm watching them laser cutting tubes, and uh, they're laser cutting. They were making like carts or something for it, but it's essentially it's a miniature frame rail, and seeing the way that you could uniquely conform these frame rails and then make these back-to-back jogs and blend them with other dimensional tubes so you're not limited to just like one stick of two by four or two by three steel it was like that's when the light went off and uh the rest is basically basically (laughs) history you know it came at the perfect time because we had maybe i don't know six months a year before got into all 3d scanning of cars um, and be able to design a complete chassis in SolidWorks with a 3D model of the vehicle there. Um, it's an insanely expensive uh, undertaking to do and a big learning curve. But yep. again, it was one of those where we, out of our comfort zone, took the leap, figured it out on the way down. And I don't want to derail, but it's something interesting. I think. Do you remember what the very first custom chassis that you did with the ferro arm and full scan design and all that? 
I don't, but I feel like it's a loaded question. It's so not. You probably no, do. it's not a loaded question. <laughs> I don't know. It's just something that popped in my head. I figure it'd be interesting if, if you remembered what that would be. I, I think, believe it or not, the first, I think we poked around with it and did some like random, like one-off base frame type stuff. You know, we said people would send in like a international pickup truck, just a rolling chassis. And we were like probing it more with the fair arm and plotting the Getting points. Getting pickup points. But it really was the, I guess the, the whole purpose for purchasing that was because we kind of had that that vision at that time w- was to scan the entire car. As we're getting super proficient in SolidWorks and everything in the shop is now happening that way. And how can you how can you design this chassis that needs to like be so integral to a car and a unibody car without having all those points. You, you simply cannot measure it. There'd be no way to individually build all those pieces, corner weld them, grind them, and you'd be there for the rest of your life. And let's face it, I mean, the stance itself, I mean, this, this, how it sits is as important as anything that we've, you know, we've talked about it every, yep. every time we talk to a builder on the podcast, the stance. It's very difficult to go off of a factory chassis and be like, well, I've picked, you know, I've got the pickup points, I've got this, without having the body scan and knowing exactly wheels, tires, and being able to see it. I mean, that's it's been invaluable to customers and builders to be like, oh yeah, shit, that's what I want to do. And this, there's so much that they figure out prior to building it yep. in just the chassis design phase. Segue that back into the uh, the spec chassis. Yeah, this, um, that was the spec Camaro. Yep. And we're able to 3D scan, uh, I think the third Camaro that we bought. We, we struggled. That was, you know, we could touch on that further down the line when we start talking about the Survivor stuff, but we were pretty naive about purchasing <laughs> Survivor cars. We learned a lot there, too. You know, yep. learned like how Don't not, buy to buy a, on eBay. How not to buy a car. And was that when y'all are sitting at Crossroads and it goes by on the <laughs> Yes. Yeah. That we was, bought it on eBay, sight unseen. <laughs> we're sitting at Crossroads, a local restaurant, and we see this flatbed coming by with a 67 Camaro on it. Yeah. Like, Oh shit, there's our Camaro. Oh man, that thing's horrible looking. Like just the waves. You could tell it was just full of Bondo. Um, it was supposed to be an original unrestored, unpainted, untouched Camaro. And it had been heavily touched. It's amazing what pictures on the internet. It was brutally fondled versus, (laughs) you know, 50 feet from the, from a road going 40 miles an hour. (laughs) And that again, we're sitting at lunch with my dad and that's like, he, he had a lot of like strong attributes, but I'd say like car selection, car (laughs) style, like, eh, maybe not so much, but even he's sitting there, he's like, that fucking quarter panel is a different color. Like you're crazy. That thing's like a mint survivor. And we get back to the shop. Yeah, sure. The quarter's like brown. The rest of the car is gold. <laughs> like Flipped down the license plate and there was Bondo dripping there that they had hardened and they painted over. So well, that, I, hate, I hate to, you know, we could we'll derail a little we, bit. Yeah, we yes. go about that all day. But. So you're at the point, now you're thinking, so that's just when spec chassis yeah. is born. So that, Phil ended up finding like a super mint, untouched Survivor Camaro, which that was key to having something that was unmolested that you knew the floor pans, the sub rails, the mounting locations, that everything was exactly where GM placed it in 1968. Um, we learned that from the tri five stuff where like every tri fives had hat channels and body mounts and you know, issues over the years. So we wanted to make sure we were starting with something that was mint. And that was the, really the first 
product that we engineered, like that we, rather than treating it as just like, we're doing this suspension, we're doing this chassis, it, like we're heavily vested in this. And I think we probably spent like six or seven months just making multiple like iterations of it, even to the point where we built a chassis and, you know, like a prototype and just didn't like a lot of the stuff with it. We, you know, we, we stress tested some things and it, it was perfectly fine, but it just didn't look substantial. It would have worked like perfectly, but the old man walks by. Are you fucking kidding? Those, those are the fucking frame rails. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to build that with those fucking frame. And yeah, some of that stuff's just appeal. So we looked at it and we said, well, okay. Yeah. You know, I think we should, I think we should tweak those rear rails and in doing so, we can change this body mount and do that and do that. So there's a lot of things that work quite well, just designing clean slate and solid works. But you also need to see the finished product because you get a little warped perspective sometimes. So I think after that first one came out, it was great to just have something that was a physical product. And it was a, a really good visual as to how, how it fit the floor. It was really amazing. And then uh, kind of dove into like the final rendition of that. And at that point, yep. <laughs> yeah, at that point, we kind of, we did what we always do. Um, you've got to prove it. So what do you do? You build a demo car. Another, you know, the ultimate advantage of having the hot rod shop and the chassis shop all in one. So in record time, we put that car together, got it on the road. And like, to be honest with you, I wasn't expecting a lot. You know, I, it's hard to come from like fully option, fast track, massive brakes, independent rear suspension, Penske shocks, like best of everything to now I'm driving like our budget line where it's got like our basic shock package, an 11 inch brake kit on it and a 430 horsepower motor. That wasn't even, that was a takeout motor. Yeah. (laughs) And a a five speed. That didn't shift under power. Right, right. And drove it down the road and like, fucking mind-blowing that it it was almost like this is a problem like did we, you did you know instantly yeah i'm like we have a yeah, we, we have, have the bump a, in the shop yeah like we have a problem this is this is like too good almost as good as the absolute top of the line and it's a third of the cost and we can do these in like super high volume and then uh we drove the wheels off the car took it on multiple road tours we did the uh the super Chevy shootout, which was again, insanely yeah. mind blowing. Um, so we showed up with, uh, the rampage Camaro, which was an all out kick ass fucking race car. Uh, and then this sub 400 horsepower Camaro with eight inch front wheels and or seven inch front wheels, eight inch rear wheels, a five speed that wouldn't shift under power. And no we were, intention of ever, there was no intention of that car ever being an autocross contender just wasn't a thought during the design. And then it was a suspension shootout where we did a zero to 60 to zero speed stop challenge, an autocross, a slalom and a road course. Um, the rampage Camaro was like a year and a half of faster than anybody else. I think it, it finished before we even started the thing, but <laughs> <laughs> it was legitimately like 15, 20 seconds quicker. Supremely unfair advantage with that car, but Every one of our competitors in the suspension industry had their, you know, their their tried and true car. It was everyone their, had seven, eight hundred horsepower. They brought their rampage. Yeah, 
Yeah, the ringers, the ones yeah. that they've been campaigning, they've yeah. had you know years of development into. Everything was, you know, carbon fiber hoods, carbon fiber fenders, no interior, 345 tires, front and rear, seven, 800 horsepower, full roll cages. And we showed up with grandma's Camaro, basically. With what size tires? Uh, I think they were like 235s in front and 245s in the rear. Um, and we ended up finishing third or fourth. Yeah, it was like the fastest in a number of the competitions. And yeah, we got killed in the zero to 60 yeah. to zero because you couldn't shift yeah, under it's, power. It's amazing with those five speeds, isn't it? There's um, a manufacturer out there that, that makes them and they fucking <laughs> do not work. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's that was a shit that came out later. It's six speed in it. That's yeah. a it's a phenomenal car now. They work fine when you're not great, needing to shift gears. Great rod transmission. Yeah, they're they cruising around. Wonderful in a 32 Ford. Yeah. But yeah, so we came out against our competitors with their, you know, hired guns, their best of the best and beat 75% of them in a car that wasn't intended or built to be a, uh, an but autocross vehicle. At that point, you know, you know, if you didn't already that you, you got lightened in a bottle, you know, and you've got to be like, oh, yeah. well, now we got to, we got to let everybody know. And that there's like you had said, almost we've got a problem, you know, there you've got your own internal problem of wrestling with, well, how do you, explain it and say how good it is, yeah. Yeah. you know? Oh, we, we cut our own throats with that product in, in multiple areas. I mean, we were selling a Camaro front subframe for $8,000 at the time. And then we had this full chassis priced at $10,000 that would pretty much outperform it. Um, yeah. We had C10 bolt-on suspension yeah, and then we developed a C10 chassis that was almost the same price and ten times better. So it, it kind of changed our direction quite a bit and opened our eyes, and I think changed a lot in the industry. I think so. It made uh, it opened a lot of eyes. Um, you know, it made a lot of the guys who were like charging big money for a chassis that was a lesser than our top of the line. It kind of woke them up to like. Prices seem uh, to change uh -oh. a little bit. Yeah, uh -oh. we were a third of the price of what yeah. most of our competitors were doing. That they were at fifteen grand, we right. were at or two thirds the price. We were at ten grand, and it shocked a lot of people. I think what it was capable yeah. of. And it's you know, it's not like we were giving it away. You know, we just like I said, it went very fair priced, and we we wanted to be just fair with the customers and give them. My goal is to give them a quality piece and make them enjoy the car. I, I'll never put crap out there. And uh, like you said, how do you get that out there to the people? And that was also another like, you know, kind of an evolution of the business where, well, there's not just magazines anymore. You know, now we've got social media is like super strong. Um, Instagram and Facebook are big performers for us. We've got a decent presence on there. And uh, you know like, what else we have a presence on now? Just recently, TikTok. TikTok. Go check us out on TikTok. I'm, I'm not a TikTok. I don't, I don't have it either. But we, we do we really? Yeah, Roadster Shop is on yeah, TikTok. I had no idea. Is it is it trending? Is that what they say? Uh, I think you're using that word wrong. Sorry. We ha we have we're not trending yet, but we are on TikTok. So it was. Sorry, in, it was. I was using it somewhat correctly. Maybe. All right. <laughs> so, so, like you said, how do you how do you tell these people? How do you tell the customer base what you have, what it does, why they need it, and why it's better and you can't do that like in a magazine ad because every magazine at what magazine ad out there 
doesn't say that it's, it's the all, best. It's always the greatest. Like in the a magazine, it's the best. It's like the world's greatest cup of coffee. I mean, how many people have the world's greatest cup of coffee? You know, yeah, no, the ultimate G machine pro touring right. R spec. You could no say, offense to the magazines out there, but we everybody yeah. that's in it knows it. It's 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 you're promoting yourself and it, yeah, right. it's not exactly biased. Exactly. So unbiased. At that point, we said, well, we need to concentrate more on like video marketing. So people can physically see it. We want to like give them the experience and let them decipher it. And that's that kind of led the way for a lot of our marketing moving forward. I know, you know, you guys here because we sit in marketing meetings all the time and I'm, I'm a firm believer in like how people go about the buying process. And I just model that off of like myself and other people around me. And I think that, uh, you know, you capture it in social media and we've got, you know, Chris and design does a great job of putting stuff out there to capture them. And the next thing to do is to like validate the product and people want more information. So it's not uh, give away all the secrets. Well, <laughs> you, at that point That's you go, you know, you go to YouTube and you start watching more and more videos on it. And you know, the ultimate purchase is done through, I think you have to have a, a solid website, you know, which we've spent a great deal of time and money on to navigate, get some further information at which point, like you're ready to make a purchase and with a knowledgeable sales staff. Exactly. <laughs> And uh, oh, it wasn't even a joke. I mean, yeah. seriously, we know that all the time. We, you know, call up to get something, whatever, and maybe a great website or maybe this. And then you talk to the guy that's answering the phone. It's like, I don't even think he knows what that they what sell that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, but I think Phil could yeah. probably, you know, speak to that a little bit because that's as the growth of the business came, it became very difficult for Phil running the business and me, you know, out in the back running the shop to field phone calls and promptly get back to people and generate quotes. And you, you see that being, I think a, uh, a hang up with a lot of companies that are growing because they're typically based around the in, the individual, you know, a founder. And sometimes that's like the stalling point is bringing in a sales staff and shedding some of that. And they've got to be good. While all this is going on, just so everybody kind of knows, you know, we touched on it in the last episode was, you know, the perception of, you know, must be easy, must be nice is probably was easier on them than, than some others. But yeah. while all this is going on, you're still working on cars. You're still in the shop. You're still doing that. You're still making sure that you're getting the new staff up on chassis building and stuff like that. You are still hopping in the rig, driving cross country, setting up for shows, yep. being there at shows doing all that. So you're still doing all of that. And like you said, it, it, to your point, you're still connected, you know, and there becomes a point where as connected as you want to be, you start being disconnected from the other things. You disconnected strongly on the home front <laughs> during that time frame. You know, yeah. you, Serious <laughs> sacrifice there. Yeah. You, I mean, we've certainly, we're at a great point now, but you certainly sacrifice tremendously and you have to have you know, you have to have a, a great wife who understands that. And, uh, you know, you, you miss some milestones of kids growing up and stuff like that. But uh, get to put in the work now to reap the benefits later. That's it. Um, but yeah, good. Phil kind of took it from there and started building a sales team. Yeah, I think you say we had it or people have said we've had it easier than others. Um, yes and no. I think one of the biggest reasons that we've grown so fast is that we are two completely different people 
like he said, he's kind of the driving force on the style and design side of it. And that's where most businesses in this industry come from is you've got someone leading the charge and developing the product or building the cars and having the style, but there's nobody on the backside following that up and running the business side of it. So that generally struggles quite a bit. So while he's doing all the fun, exciting stuff of designing cars, I'm designing uh, sales templates and quote templates and inventory systems and ERP systems and payroll and all the other stuff that, you know, obviously is equally important, but super sexy too. Yeah, real awesome, <laughs> fun stuff. Um, but I think that is a, a huge advantage for us that he can fully focus on the car design and, you know, chassis design style and i could fully focus on the the business end and making all of that work behind the scenes um, you sure where, she sure shit don't want me doing that <laughs> well, <laughs> we're full aware of what it comes to <laughs> you and technology uh, we've had three computer systems he doesn't have a login to any of them <laughs> i get it done though <laughs> yeah so it's been incredible and you know i don't have to worry about the day-to-day style and and design and direction of the company that way. And he doesn't have to worry about running the business side of the company at all. Um, So we're both able to kind of charge forward, you know, relying on each other to, to carry half of the business. And, you know, I think that's what's, what's really contributed to a ton of our success and both being like-minded. And then we bunch of bounce a bunch of stuff back and forth. Um, You know, some input on design and style from my end and he'll throw ideas out there on, you know, how to do things or what we should be charging or what's involved in it. So it's, it's just an awesome relationship that, uh, keeps stuff moving. Well, that I, I think that's the next, you know, the next major step in what solidified us as a, a thriving business. Um, at that point, the sales were there, the production, you know, was, was cranking. I mean, we had, uh, chassis rolling, you know, and we had a, a very well proven product and with rapid growth, I mean, that was like exponential growth. How do you handle that and move forward? And, you know, again, it's not the glamorous side of things, but you're involved in it now, Josh, and you know, like how it runs. And at that point, you know, Phil spent what was two years probably like in the trenches putting a new ERP system in. Yeah, that was horrible. Which, All I can say to that was like, that sucks. That looks like <laughs> that sucks. But that's like, that's our key to success now. Again, dumb luck and timing. I, you know, Josh, you were heavily involved in the, the scheduling and production set up on the, the chassis shop side that if we didn't do that when we did, there'd be oh. no way to run the business now. There'd be no way to even have the time to implement it so just no, you were a master at excel that was quite the uh quite the detailed sheet that we had and there's no possible way i mean I, it's funny you bring it up because i haven't even thought about that like think back about how we were scheduling stuff yeah. and parts and things like that if we didn't have that erp and now that was a painful fucking process it was it was terrible it was <laughs> yeah but it's just you know Again, necessity, you know, right. right? Saw what was going on, needed to make some changes and bit the bullet, dove in. I didn't know shit about installing an ERP system, but. But the, but like, it goes back to our point that we keep talking about and not to, like to toot our own horn. This is just advice for anybody is once, once we 
identified that that needed to be done. You know, it was buckled down and you, we stuck with it till to the end, no matter how painful it was, no matter how much it sucked. And no matter how many times we did not want to sit in those eight hour all day long, well, what if this and what if that type meetings, um, it, it had to be done. And it was the hard work to get to the next step because we, we knew the value in it. And that goes to the same thing on everything that pretty much the roadster shop's ever done. Okay. It's, you know, there was way easier ways to build chassis. There's way easier ways to build cars. There's way easier ways to do most of everything that we're doing. But if it's not the right way or the correct way, then you kind of just suck it up and yeah. deal with the shit. I, I'd say at that point, once we had some really solid organization in the shop, we're just back on the gas. You know, there was a period of time where it's kind of like buckling down, weathering the storm, trying to get the like the puzzle pieces in order, and then we just started rocking and rolling. I mean, that was yeah, right about the time everything kind of got smooth, and like me and Phil were kind of happy with the way everything was running. You're like, hey, guess yeah. what? We got to build these. <laughs> well, it was a lot easier once you have all your systems in place and everything kind of laid out. It's a lot easier to plug people in to kind of handle that and then take the parts department and run, take the order entry and run, take the scheduling and run. And right. you have total visibility of what's going on and, you know, be able to manage the shop a little bit more from the computer base instead of pulling the strings yourself and having to make sure this part was ordered. Know that this is the part number that's got to go with this one. And okay, we, we was, were onboarding, we were onboarded new chassis with the old system prior to the ERP and knew how bad that was. And then we've onboarded, I don't know, untold new chassis now. I mean, it's weekly, and it it's seamless for the most part. But once... So, once circle back. Yeah, yeah, once it was, you know, like I said, once we're back on the gas, now it was time to go back and, like, reevaluate what are the inefficiencies from, a, like, a fabrication standpoint? What's going on in the shop that could be better and could speed things up? And you know, the very first thing was like, it was apparent anytime you'd walk through the shop, there's three inch Rolock discs like piled to the ceiling. I mean, we were cranking through some just grinding discs from deburring parts and all those parts were just everything that came off of the plasma. And you'd look, sometimes these things are like, until I have to do it myself, and then it all of a sudden that's, which is key to be super involved in your business because some of these things like, a lot of people aren't going to step up and bitch about because they're doing their job. But when I get a parts bin full of plasma cut stuff because I'm going to build up, you know, a particular chassis and it takes me four hours to just deburr the parts before I could even do something, you know, fuck this. This is not going to fly, you know? And I'd say, like, I don't even think I finished building them. I was on the computer looking at lasers because I wanted something where we're cranking parts and you're getting higher precision and you're getting way better edge quality and there's virtually zero deburring. So that was the next step in upgrading the equipment. So I'd say like that year we took on a uh, custom, massive custom built laser machine, fiber laser that uh, custom built to our size because we process a lot of long sheets and uh, looked at what, what are the options for that? And, uh, found something really unique that has a tube laser attachment in it for lower production stuff. So now that let us take care of all the prototype work. 
and do some of the low volume production stuff. So now we're speeding up. We can design spec chassis and we can knock out the prototype and we can knock out the first run of like five production chassis. And then we can, in that time period, we can send them off and have big quantities of that cut. Now it's taken on a you know, CNC back gauged uh, press brake, tumblers, hydraulic flaring tools for you know, bench mounted hydraulic flaring tools for the brake lines and assembly, and just continuing to restructure things in the shop. And uh, we selfishly, when we made that addition, we had a nice little storage spot in the back that uh, <laughs> you know had some of our own you know personal toys and incoming projects and things like that, and that had to go. So ex- we were expanding like crazy, and you weren't really happy about that day. Not, oh, not it was our, it was our clubhouse. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like a cool little spot. You it know, had, it, was, <laughs> it had to a happen. Very short period of time. So some of that stuff went to mom and dad's house. <laughs> you know, some of it went in my garage. Some of it went in storage. And uh, again, we react fast. That was like came up with the idea on a Monday, and by Friday the walls knocked down and. Uh, cranes on order we extended the cranes added chassis bays added racking and then uh outgrew the parts department and just kept just kept rolling built the parts department uh to be tenfold the size that it was and then continued to like departmentalize the shop which i think you know at this point josh you were heavily involved in the chassis shop and that's uh that's something that kept getting like segmented we were adding more and more staff and kind of breaking up the process to speed it up rather than dumb down the product. So I think you could you could speak to that, how that you saw firsthand. I mean, I think you came in, you came in and we were still hovering at that like 350, 400 chassis, something like that, probably right. annually. And uh, you know, you came in and on the gas. So tell us a little bit about that because now it's now you're a part of the Roadster Shop's growth and a part of the uh, the Roadster Shop story. So that was the next big stage and taking production like way up and making uh, making some big improvements in the shop. So well, a lot of that was. I mean, we were me and Phil were working hand in hand on on onboarding the the chassis shop side of things to the ERP and and with scheduling and um, looking back about all of the negatives that we foreseen that we saw it was going to happen or, or what we thought would never work. Um, we had to kind of just get past that. And me and Phil talk about this all the time. We could sit there and talk about a hundred problems for every single different thing. But at some point you need to just kind of start implementing and then work for those problems along the way. And the scheduling and being, efficient with each individual process even after we've subdivided stuff was i think the most important thing there's there's the old way of doing things and what most all of us thought was the right thing you know and you're looking at like well we build this many of these and this many of these and this many of these we always need to have this many of these going at all times and build this many well when volume starts coming to a certain point you know we start getting to more just in time kind of mentality of Every, this chassis is going to be scheduled to be built on this day. We know historically how much it take, how much time it takes to build each individual component, whether it be a control arm, whether it be front cross member, whether it be the small parts, bins, frame rails, whatever it is. So we can schedule all of those different departments 
independently of, you know, in those departments and backdate everything based on how much time it takes. So nobody's just building like a shit ton of whatever they like to build whenever they like to build it, you know, and putting it on the shelf and not building the things that they need to be building. Um, it was a, it was a complete change of mentality and it was met with some, you know, there's some guys that been doing it the old way and it just doesn't make sense. And me and Phil laughed because we, it was always just trust the system, trust the computer, trust the system, trust the computer, just do what it says to do when it says to do it. I promise it. some of it makes no sense, but it will work out. And I mean, that was a, I'd say probably about a six to eight month kind of getting everybody on the same page, figuring out all the little issues of the and things. Refining it a bunch yeah. as we go. And there was things, yeah, we thought that was great. And then you start, you're like, well, this will never work. Can you change this? And and then after about six or eight months, it, it starts running smoother. Well, we went, I mean, that first year, that first 12 months, I mean, we took lead times down tremendously. I mean, I think we're, our lead times were, at one point, we were in the 18 to 22 weeks or something like that when it's all you know, kind of started and in 12 months we were down to eight, you know? And I mean, at that point when you're at eight weeks, I mean, things, lots of things start opening up, you know, and you have capacity to start doing other things. And then your eyes get wide and bright and big and say, you know what, we could, what if we built this? This would be cool. You, <laughs> you got to be careful. You got to be careful because like <laughs> if I get bored or if I have time to, <laughs> Just to think that something's gonna, something's gonna happen. You know? And then uh, I guess my my biggest takeaway of that whole experience, and still to this day, is and you touched on this in the last one is no matter how right you are, you think you are right now, you could be real wrong in a week. So just because it's always been done that way, and just because it's always worked that way, doesn't mean it can never be looked at again or changed. And the way things worked really good for say small parts for spec or uh, whoever was building the rear ends or whoever's building the control arms, you know, at one point it was the control arm guy built, you know, fast track Revo spec control arms. And it doesn't make sense at first when you're like, well, we could break this up and only do these, these on these days and only do these on these days. But looking at it always with a fresh set of eyes and, and, and a clear head where you're like, you know what, maybe if we were to do this, 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 and this, then that would work out better. You're like, oh shit, now we've got, these guys have the capacity and we haven't even really added employees that much. You know, you just kind of move some things around and, and change the way they did it. Then you've got happier employees too because they're getting to do a little bit of different stuff and they're doing that. It's it's all encompassing. We could talk for yeah, that could another whole episode on just, you know, <laughs> on the production, production and how, side of how things. It but, yeah. yeah, I think that was, I mean, that was a monumental uh, like undertaking of, elevating that production and implementing all that. And now we're just, we're, we're cranking with it. And the, you know, I think the one thing, probably most people, the chassis shop's cool. Obviously that's, you know, where our focus is at, but uh, the cool factor around here is probably the cars. And we've neglected that whole 2011 to 2022 timeframe. So a little shift in yeah, the chassis yeah, we got, shop. We got a little bit of a window to fill in on, you know, What's going on in the hot rod shop during all this time? The Camaro spec chassis was such a successful platform and it was, you know, it's a wildly popular platform. So as that became like quickly became probably our number one seller, it was pretty easy. You know, you didn't have to be a genius to think that 
we need to roll this into some other applications. And uh, the next one, we just kind of looked at what like historically was popular. And uh, that's when, you know, Phil, had, that, that's kind of his genre of uh, automobiles. The C10 King, as they call him. I've heard that they, uh, I've heard that, that name. I've, I've heard those words uttered a time or two. Yeah, by Phil. Yeah. By, <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil again scores this like super bitching survivor blue and white, uh, was it 76? Yep. 76 square body. And uh, that was kind of his influence to tweak that. We couldn't leave it alone, obviously. So now we got to tweak it and convert it to bags. And uh, again, you know, I, I think I was a little like reluctant. It was a tough on that direction to go. I think for all of us, and we in the past we use a lot of stuff with airbags that was somebody else's suspension that was adapted for airbags, and we were just never happy with the way they rode the the performance, the drivability. So. Initially, we were going to build the truck on coilovers, but then looking at the whole lowered C10 market, like it, it's got to be on bags, and we got to design a version of the spec chassis to take bags, but it's got to live up to, you know, the, the Camaro spec chassis and and what we're all about. So I, and we were going back and forth, and then I just kind of dumped it in his lap and Mike's lap and said, "It's got to be on yeah. bags." So <laughs> figure it out. So that's what we did, and the same philosophy. It's don't don't save time and money on engineering. Save it on the production process. So this was the first thing that we went into, not like retrofitting an airbag, but making an airbag suspension. And I think prior to that, we were always like very reluctant to recommend running bags yeah. in our chassis. I mean, I think any customer you would have asked, we more steered them politely away yeah, politely steered. it was just our experience with it and uh why you know like airbags they're on a lot of oem vehicles um they're on you know virtually every big rig out there and you don't really have issues with them i mean you rip some airlines out of your trailers like regularly but um why can't you make it work good it's a, it's a pretty simple very simple philosophy um but everything in the past, and almost everything in our industry is adapted. It right. was an existing suspension. They forced it in, and yep. less than desirable results. Yeah, from from line routing and, and mounting of you know, different items or the bags themselves and the improper angles. And I mean, you, that's the major key that you're touching on is the yeah. fact that it was thrown in a set of control arms with a welded plate, or and then it's a factory chassis that they're running lines and stuff like that. So that was the major kind of like. I was giving him a softball to knock it out of the park here. (laughs) As we engineered that, it was make this a dedicated airbag front suspension. Mount the bag where it belongs. uh, Make sure that there's no bind. Everything articulates the way that it should. That ground clearance is there when it's, you know, fully aired out. And uh, that you have just the optimal ride height and that your motion ratios are there. And you've got decent shock packaging, which is always a little bit of a struggle. And uh, once again we've got to prove this, right? You know, you want to put a vehicle on the road and knock that truck out super quick, uh, built something really bitching out of it. And uh, that was those two kind of like, we'll touch on this as we go, but they kind of like created the Survivor Series without us even knowing it at the time. 
because we're building stuff to get it on the road to test it very quickly. You know, we wanted a proof of concept that we could get out there and we didn't want to look like shit doing it. So you, Yeah, had to look cool. <laughs> we didn't want to buy something that was already restored with a cheesy paint job because then it would come back that, that you know, Roadster did Shop did that one. Like these were original paint, patinaed, faded cars. It was a, a clear as day. Like we didn't do the body and paint work on them, so we couldn't be uh, held liable for it. But they just, they were fucking cool looking. And it's, it's funny when you, because now that you bring that up, we, we don't really think about that now, but that's like absolutely how the Survivor series started because we figured like, what better way, how can, we were so worried about like bringing a piece of shit out there that looked like amateur built, but we needed to get a car on the road quickly. So if it's old paint and it's got a little rust, like nobody's going to think that you did a bad you, paint that job. You yeah. did. So you can get away. Like the doors can fit poorly that, you know, that can have dents and dings. So got that thing on the road. And that was a very similar experience to the Camaro. I had never had any positive experiences driving bagged vehicles. Um, in the past, it was just if you wanted to dump it on the ground. like that. There was no other advantage to an airbag system other than going to the cruise night and dropping that fucker on the rocker panels, you know? But this, it kind of had, like, there was some great other things that came with it, which was the ride quality. Um, we weren't looking, this wasn't a race truck, you know, it didn't have spoilers or diffusers on it. It was meant to go on road tours and to daily drive. And that's what Phil did with it. But the thing just rode so good because you realize you could run like proper pressures in the bags to where you're not having to pump them like 200 pounds of air pressure just to hold the thing at ride height. And with the shock positioned correctly, you can get, you know, some decent shock dampening out of them. And it was, again, one of those like shockingly good things. And with the way that it was configured, I mean, you take this thing on uh, road tours and it's kind of an eerie feeling when you're sitting in one of those, in the passenger seat of one of those square bodies that's hammered on the ground because you feel like at any given point, like you could just kind of like roll out the windshield and be especially at like 105 in the <laughs> yeah. louisiana swamp exactly so i'm sitting there i remember sitting the- there like in the passenger seat and that's where we were somewhere in like louisiana or something just ripping down some two-lane road right, still dude. the best road trip yeah, doing like a hundred and yeah. something miles an hour Phil's in mexico <laughs> in mexico <laughs> yeah that was louisiana and then we hook hang a left and we're over there in mexico somewhere <laughs> and uh like just ripping down the road and I'm sitting there and like all of a sudden for a second, I look, I'm like, Oh, like, is this, is this okay? And three inches off the ground. Yeah, three and, inches off, and then we're like, just hammer this pothole. I, I can remember. Cause I'm like, I saw it coming. He didn't see it coming. And I'm bracing myself for impact. You know, I'm thinking like, this is, this is going to be bad. This is going to be a bent wheel. This thing's going to bottom out. And it was like, <laughs> just floated over it. Like it was nothing. And that was, that was one of those like eye opening moments of this is, this has its place other than just being able to set it really low to the ground. And now, like, there's applications that we recommend, like, even guys that don't, aren't looking to lower the vehicle, period. Give you that smoother, yeah. floaty ish. It's the, it's ride the cl- quality, but still handles and performs pretty damn good yeah it's the closest thing to like the old caddy floating feel going down the highway while still being 
planted in control in a corner and being in control. And uh, yeah, that became, you know, it probably wasn't like the, the biggest seller in the square body platform, but it fit into the C10s and C10s just took off. I mean, that was right there with the Camaros. And, uh, you know, I think at that time we, we were probably three, four years into the production of the spec stuff and it was dialed in and it was time to add more applications. Um, I think we had, we'd gotten better as a company, um, took on more engineer, built up the engineering staff, built up the engineering equipment and, uh, kind of just, you know, had a little, a little bit of free time to add something into the mix. And we just went back and again, looked at, uh, what are the strong sellers historically? And the 48 to 54 Chevy trucks have always been strong. Like since the very first one we built in the early two thousands and the, uh, what 55 to 59 Chevy trucks were like kind of a close second. Yep. They're more complex than what the C10s are. The C10s are pretty simple, like stick straight rails. We kept them pretty like no frills, but uh, I think this was another opportunity to just take them a little bit to the next level. You've got a lot more things happening on that era of trucks. You've got some funky cab mounts, you've got running board mounts, you've got some other tolerances that are kind of tricky to get around. Pedal assemblies on the chassis and mountain boosters and masters and clutch pedals and clearance to your motor and trans with that. Yep. So, yeah, those we developed and just became like way more complex chassis than what some of the other spec stuff was, but became just awesome products and concentrated more and more on uh, getting these things on the road because that's, at that point, we're doing road tour after road tour, piling miles on these things. And uh, it was easier to sacrifice ride height. Like more, it's always a moral struggle. You want the thing, like you sit there and debate with yourself, you know, when you're designing, because obviously we want to sit as low as humanly possible, but you also want to get the damn things on the road, which means you don't want to chop up the beds. You don't want to build hinges. You don't want to build inner fenders. So we started focusing on all the, uh, like the what we call stock ride height, but standard height. That'd be sta- standard, standard height. height. I apologize. Yeah. apologize that was, that was, again, that was where I was going to go next. That was the next reactionary play that we had a lot of customers. I that, don't want that thing slammed on the ground. It, it, a lot of guys that wanted the classic truck look, but didn't want to build inner fenders, raise the wheel tubs, build step or raise the bed or build a step in the bed. Um, so we then built the the standard height spec chassis for all the pickup trucks and you kind of carried that across the line. It's great and, for the customers. It's horrible on the production side of things <laughs> when it's just like, oh, yeah. We have like 300 variations of a C10 <laughs> chassis, I feel like. Monday, a customer asks for it. Tuesday, we all sit down and talk about it. Wednesday, it's getting built. Fuck, we got to do this, you know? But Then Thursday, or, he gets a hair in his ass to change it just a little <laughs> bit and put these cool, like... I like to make it more better. but no the the standard height stuff is is, you know across pretty much all the trucks now that we have and it fits again just like every product that's come after the previous one it's fitting fixing a problem and fitting Fitting a niche niche. yep Yep. and then with the next niche we sound like really smart (laughs) we're not (laughs) next niche we kind of had no love for the the Ford crowd right the Mustang was Actually, and, kind of a challenge. Yeah, that was like 
the that was like the Mount Everest, you know. Bet you can't. Yeah, well, yeah. Fucking watch me. <laughs> <laughs> now there was a unibody car. We'd built a couple for local customers, just kind of simple bolt-on stuff. And you remember that one? It was horrible yeah. suspension geometry. Whose suspension was that? It was horrible suspension geometry. We ended up burning up a couple of tires. Take another just- whiskey. I'll get you to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it I, you saw a big void in the marketplace again for a product that we could really kind of come in and, you know, set the industry on its head with. There's a ton of Mustangs out there. Our fast track chassis was an extremely elaborate build to put into a car. You had to cut the whole floor out of the car, cut the wheel tubs out, cut the firewall out, put the chassis in and then build all new floors, tubs, firewall, inner fenders. It was a couple hundred hours of fabrication work. And Mustang was probably one of the highest produced cars out there. And there's a lot of what guys the, with Mustangs. What are the production numbers on those? One yeah. of the highest. Yeah. 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 2022 Josh. It's a, sig- <laughs> it's a significantly high number. Yeah, it is. It's a big number. So, yeah, yeah. yeah we really were looking at it. The bolt-on stuff, we were not impressed with. We didn't want to do bolt-on stuff. We figured we'd already designed a spec chassis for the Camaro. Let's, How hard could it be? Yeah, let's go after the Mustang. Um, proved to be a little bit more challenging. A lot of uh, obstacles to overcome that were different than the GM stuff. Um, I'll let you take that. Yeah, that, your, uh, your wheelhouse. Yeah, Phil touched on a lot of the, a lot of good points because the uh, you know a lot of times the hot rod shop drives the production of some stuff in the chassis shop, and as we we're starting to do more and more survivor cars and do installations, we found that well, you get a lot of guys asking to do a Mustang, you know, and like if a guy calls and wants a '69 Camaro survivor built, okay, it's super simple. Like here's this, 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 and this, and this is roughly what it's going to cost guy calls and has a nice survivor 65 mustang that number is like three to four times that because just like phil said you're cutting there's there's nothing wrong with that to do it at a very high level and have a very like bitchin high-end car but it's such an undertaking to do so we originally designed that perimeter style frame years ago that was the fast track and at that time just looking at the car it wasn't even considered it was just yeah there's no way to do like anything without taking a plasma cutter and cutting from the firewall all the way back to the trunk floor and just keeping the body shell um had to figure out a way had to figure out a way to do something to take care of this customer base because we did two of them and uh put bolt on stuff on it and honestly we went we went backwards on it and i i can't say that I'm proud, you know, of we we stood stood behind it, did everything we could possibly do to make those cars the best that they can be. But I I wasn't proud of them. It wasn't something that I would want to drive. It was a very you know, very entry level price point. What suspension was that? That the one that Phil was going to tell you about. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew at this at this time we. We just we we kept getting better and better, and I knew as we kept going back and looking at things that we once thought were impossible was impossible. You'd have these fresh ideas just because you're like my skill level was better, Mike's skill level significantly better, and put the car up on the lift and looked at it and uh, just sitting there staring at it. You know, I think it was the exact same scene from Gone in sixty seconds. You know, it's like running my my hand down it and talking to it. And, 
Yeah, that you never, remind that, me of Nick Cage. Yeah, that never happened. I want to have something really cool, like that's like really eccentric. That I like, you know, had this revelation and everything. But no, I just looked at it, stared at it, and I said, "Man, you you've you got to be able to do this without cutting these subrails out." Because as soon as you, as soon as you start chopping that out, now it's major surgery. So regardless of how bolt on you say it is, it's not. You know, and there's nothing structural to attach to. If those are gone, so the chassis has to be super rigid, which means you got to have a lot of like beam height on the rail, so it's going to hang down below, and then you're going to have a terrible ride height. So staring at it, it, it kind of looked like just taking like rough measurements. I could see the spread of the control arms, and I could see that like okay, you could fit the geometry of a spec front end will fit within this. Well, how do you get it in there, you know, without chopping the shit out of it, and? uh why can't you clamshell it? You know, why can't you make it somewhat of a modular design and kind of cradle the bottom of the rail? Because if you can retain the factory unibody and treat your chassis as like a subframe connector plus, you know, it's it doesn't need to be nearly as rigid as a complete perimeter frame or a bolt-on frame because you're going to lean on the strength that the car already has and then increase it significantly tying the unibody together with making a much beefier subframe connector, so to speak, and integrating a whole back half of the chassis. Um, looking at it that way, it was all of a sudden like, oh, we could do this. You know, this could definitely be done. And, you know, unlike the Camaro, you still, there's a little bit of cutting, but you, know, you spend about 20 minutes with a, a drill and a cutoff wheel and you clear off a few brackets and you get rid of the strut towers and, uh, you're in business and that thing ended up being such a simple bolt-on i mean that that chassis is really really cool and it's impressive every time we put one together the the way that it that it all lands in place and it it did mean like at that point i think we were more and more focused on like budget 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 not only on the chassis but the whole build so i really wanted to make sure that you could get not only 15 inch wheels on it but an off-the-shelf entry level wheel because that's that's always been something with most of our chassis most every aftermarket suspension on the market is a high offset wheel which then typically only comes in a three-piece wheel which means you're, you're spending five grand yeah, minimum to, to yeah, make it happen you're, you're spending five g's on wheels okay well like that's a tough number to swallow for somebody that wants to do this and like retain their 302 small block and their four-speed transmission so we ended up uh making that a narrower track with fabricated a different style control arm and then uh, put it on kind of a uniball style uh, upper ball joint mount that uh, uh, that's, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go to another lesson in, uh, you know, in, in business and in product design is don't be so set in your ways and don't like stay in just your lane, you know, look at what, what, what are guys doing in other industries that maybe are inspirational. So, looking at some of the pre-runner guys, which those dudes are just like nuts, you know, they're, they're on a different level. Yeah. That's just next level <laughs> stuff. We started, we pulled some inspiration from that with a, a chromoly, uh, upper mono ball and, uh, you know, spheric pressing spherical in the upper, uh, arm. And that allowed us to get that track within where we wanted it and make that suspension run through its travel without putting the ball joints in bind. And now you can call American racing, and get a standard offset five spoke wheel. I knew looking at the Mustang, which again, this is like having your finger on the pulse, knowing the car build side of it. I, 
I guess I don't know it that well because I can't tell you the exact model number of the wheel, but that American racing Mustang wheel, the kind of faux knockoff center cap that's like the, the Mustang from the movie. Yeah, yeah with Nicholas. Cage. <laughs> well, I knew that everybody's that calls is going to want that wheel. And that can be a deal breaker if you can't package that wheel right. because what's the alternative? Well, you can call like Greening or Evod and get a one-off custom one made for $10,000, which, yeah, hell yeah, on a high-end build, but not going to jive for something on a budget. So right. able to package all that, and that chassis just ended up, again, being one of those uh, impressive deals. When you put the time and heart into it up front, on the back end, it's it always ends up good. And a uh, little bit of like learning curve on just shock tuning and spring rates, things like that on those particular cars, which... But again, we, we put two cars on the road that we built and we're able to dial that in and yeah. put the miles on them to, to get them right before they go out the door. Yeah. Is that, that, that one was... We spent a, a lot more time like suspension tuning on that one because it's shockingly low spring rates on the back of them to like really get those cars to ride the way you want to ride. But... Uh, that's just an, that's an awesome package, and it. I gauge these things on like what makes me want one of those cars, and it's never not that I'm like not a Ford guy. I'm not like I mean I am wearing my heartbeat of America Chevrolet T-shirt at the moment. But, uh, <laughs> Is he? He's not. <laughs> He's wearing no shirt yeah. at the moment. It's a tank I, was, top. I was never like a diehard Ford guy, but it made me want a Mustang. After driving those cars, I'm like, yes, this is. It's a cool car, so that's well, a win. You know? I think a good segue then um, is to let Cougar guys know that it doesn't fit a Cougar or a Falcon, despite being two inches longer. We actually have a Cougar chassis now. So. All KTL restorations, they've got a Cougar spec chassis. Not to let the cat out of the bag, but because it's a Cougar. Oh yeah, he'll uh, get you. He'll, he'll get you. <laughs> The uh, segue from from what you were talking about using off the shelf wheels on the Mustang and and knowing what these guys were doing, I think that you overlooked the fact that I think a lot of the knowledge from how to do those spec chassis from the from or the thought process for the Mustang and some of the other specs that we've done was the validity to that build style that was given by doing the survivor cars because there was a time when all of us together would have been like. We're not even interested unless it's got 345s on the rear, yep. you know, and it's hammered on the ground. It's like, well, once the once the Survivor Series, once we started doing more of those, and we started doing those on a production level, and we've kind of got that down, and there was we were having so much fun, honestly. I mean, let, you know, peek behind the curtain. We were having so much fun doing that. Go ahead. Yeah, you've got something. I do, yeah. because that was the first time, which this speaks volumes about, like, the durability, the chassis. How long did we spend trying to jump that Mustang? <laughs> Is it, can that be talked about at this point? It's not like it was violent. I mean, it was a very smooth. You yeah. wanted to recreate the bullet yeah. scene. We're, we were in the Badlands, right? right? Yeah. We'd spent probably two and a half hours yeah. on that one <laughs> you little got, spot. Like a, at one point, there was a little, all four bunny, tires. I there bunny was, hopped it. Yeah, I bunny hopped there it. There was daylight yeah. under them. And that scary. That, well, we were driving. I remember driving, and all of a sudden, we like we hit that roller. And was it who? What was it? Me or you? That the light bulb went off. Probably you. Right. And Phil wasn't in the car to say right. you can't. Right. Do that. He was ahead like, of you us. You know what we should do? We I'm should like, jump. Whoa! It. That we almost and it was smooth. So we should jump that. 
but it's a yeah that was just you know well, where, product where, product testing where i was going though was the was the the style of the of the vehicles with on the survivor series you know and and putting giving the customer what they wanted where it was faster build time lower price and hitting the things that they really cared about was and easier installation for that home guy who didn't have to necessarily hire a professional shop to right. do all this crazy fabrication work. Well, yeah, I'm talking about on the Survivor Series builds, what we were given there. And then when the chassis designs come, it was kind of like, well, we know what we want over here for the Survivor Series builds and how to build those and what these customers really want. So we need to build more chassis that will allow them to do that. You know, in the, in the back and forth of kind of like, had the Survivor Series and building style not been what it was, I wonder if you would have looked at the chassis and the wheel fitment and the, and the, the style of that differently because it, we wouldn't have had that kind of... You would have thought it had to have a 345 exactly. on it and exactly. narrow the rails and narrow... Yeah. Right. It's So everything kind of hand-in-hand, kind of bringing back over like, the hot rod shop like the, side of... We've got the, the tail that wags the dog and the dog wags the tail. Right. Kind of like just goes... It's back like a, and forth and back and forth. It's developing. like a two-tailed dog with no heads. Yeah, and it's wagging. Yeah. Right? It's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. But on, I was trying to kind of get over on the car build side yeah. of, you know, I, know. I see where you're going with that. The, I see where you're going. The, the learning, we learn from each other yeah. daily. Yeah, I know, so, you know, one side wouldn't be what it is without the other and, you know, vice versa. So diving into that survivor build thing was... uh it just kind of happened, you know, after developing uh, the various spec chassis and getting them on the road and then uh, realizing that all of a sudden, like, hey, this is this is something and people are enjoying driving these and not waiting a significant amount of time for them. And it's also kind of nice when you can just, like, leave it sit outside all week and you're not yep. spending all your time cleaning and detailing it. The thrill is in driving it and the enjoyment is in owning and using it. And uh, then we just, I think it was a huge breath of fresh air in a different direction for us. And like you said, being able to use something, beat on it, enjoy it and uh, not be, you know, dead set on having to polish it and detail it and be a slave to keeping it clean and flawless. We get to, you get to make your own little story or history about each individual car and you get to enjoy them and have fun. Like you said, and the customer is so happy. You know, so everything about the process, you know, we were, we were having a lot of fun with them. Now, there was, there's a lot of people that didn't get it. I mean, I remember going to those first couple of Columbuses with, you know, a bunch of Survivor Series and there was builders out there. It's like, that doesn't do anything for me. Like, it's whatever. It's not, it's not slicked out and it's not hammered down and stuff like that. And that we understood that because we were, we all had that mentality at one point. Yeah, but you, know, think- you wouldn't drive that car eight hours to Columbus or right. put 3,000 miles right. on a good guy's road tour on it, you'd be scared to death that a rock chip would, you know, ruin your life. Right. Well, I think what kind of sold it to all those builders is, is they, they're sitting around and listening to, to us just cackling and laughing and t- like talking about the amazing time we had and telling stories about how awesome the ride was out there with this big group of guys that that changed uh, like changed the direction. I think a little bit of the the hot rod industry, and you know, you see more and more guys doing that because it's it it was a breath of fresh air of uh, you know just building super high end stuff was it gets not that there's anything wrong with it, but maybe it's a little stale because it's like get it done, park it there, wipe it down, look at it. Like, 
what's you want to drive these things, you right. know? And that uh, that just took off for us. I mean, I think we've probably done what thirty plus survivor builds over sixty. Yeah, it's like he said. <laughs> yeah, over but, sixty survivor builds. And even what's interesting there is how much that creeps in, even to our full high end crazy builds. You know, because it's still with the mentality of it needs to do all of these things, right? I mean, again, probably not going to want to because of that chrome bill or that paint bill, so like that. <laughs> but it's never going to be built in a way that is not capable. Yep. And just the, I guess, the creeping of the mentalities throughout the shop, and no matter what you're kind of building, it's what you've learned on from this one, and even things that we learn on, you know, the, from the high-end builds that you're going to implement on the survivor stuff. And it's like, well, shit, we can kind of do those, you know, that firewall and inner fenders kind of quick now that we've kind of got a thing. Let's go ahead yep. and do that in this one. Or, you know, we've done some survivor builds. I say survivor in air quotes, you know, with some crazy horsepower and twin turbo and supercharged and one-off chassis and stuff like that. And that's would be considered a full custom build. Yeah. Well, they, they evolve like everything else we do. Exactly. Yeah. Can't leave well enough alone. Right. But the neat thing about them is the... You know, kind of a little bit of the production mindset and the engineered approach, Adam, because we've done so many first gen Camaros, they like they go hand in hand with what's going on on the chassis engineering side of things. So, as uh, you know, as, as we have those complete 3D scans, I mean, now we're making laser cut firewall panels and AC bulkheads, and now inner fenders and radiator mounts and designing our own production radiators that are used over and over again. And now you get power steering cooler mounts and everything mounts under the dash. So I think it gives the customers a tremendous amount of value that would be very hard to duplicate like anywhere else. Because if you took all those things, what can be cut out now is nobody's getting charged for the countless hours of engineering because it's been done now over and over and over again. And we're able to use it and duplicate it. But if you were to take that car and clean slate it, I mean, you could be looking at five, 600 hours of like fabrication, paper templates and yeah. cutting them on the bandsaw versus going into the folder and Camaro brackets cut. And five and, minutes later, and, you have everything to build a Camaro. Yeah. So in minutes you have all that. And probably in 40 hours, you can put it all in the car. I mean, right down to, Recaro seat mounts. You've got multiple bucket seat mounts that adapt modern buckets into these cars. And that didn't come easy. I mean, the first one took, we probably moved them four or five different times. Multiple people drove the car. Somebody bitched that they were too high. Somebody bitched they were too low. Then they were too far forward. And you ultimately arrive at what fits pretty much every driver. And now that becomes a great recipe. Like a 69 Camaro just came in the door right now. And it's, got a chassis sitting there waiting for it it's a powder coated fully assembled ready to go spec chassis you know john our shop foreman has already put the order in with the chassis shop to laser cut you know countless brackets and components for the car and we won't begin on that car until there's a there's going to be a stack of items ready to roll and that will just we'll be able to it, we don't i don't have to think of it as like a monumental undertaking that it's a project that's going to live in this shop yeah. for it's a years. week to knock all that stuff out now when it used to be months yeah it's going to take a week to get all that done and you know probably still at this point we've got exhaust systems and a few other things that are a little bit labor intensive um but uh you know that car is going to move right through the shop and be on the road in no time and that's 
that's really the advantage to the survivor car. It's going to have the right wheel and tire package. It's going to sit right. And you're going to have a customer who's just super stoked. And ultimately, I think, you know, you guys know better than I would as far as like the numbers go, but almost every one of these turns into a, a repeat customer because they are so just thrilled with the way the cars work and just thrilled with the outcome and thrilled with the bill of, uh, you know, what it costs them to do. Yeah. I was going to touch on that, but it brought it up perfectly. Uh, I think we owe a good amount of the success in survivor series to George. I think he was, uh, pretty instrumental in, in making this whole process start. You probably Definitely drastically oversold the time frame that we could build the first car in. No, that's I a was, challenge, though. <laughs> so I was going to touch. So we did it. I was going to touch on that. That's something that I've told you guys this before. I tell everybody that you talk to all the time. Our relationship has worked so well because you fully understand that I'm going to write a check that my ass can't catch cash. But we right? can cash. But it you can cash together, it, right? And and there's, you've never looked at me and be like. Oh, what the fuck? Don't say it. Why would you say that? It's like, okay, so that's what we can do. And that, I mean, I remember that conversation vividly at Nashville, you know, with George and him talking about the Camaro and wanted to go to Columbus, you know, and that was, that was in five weeks from Nashville. Yep. And <laughs> fuck yeah. I don't think we should <laughs> talk about this. <laughs> we want to advertise that. We didn't have as much going on in the shop right. at the time. <laughs> Josh came to me. He's like, "Hey, George wants to build this green Camaro he just bought. Can we do that on a uh, spec chassis and just leave the paint as is?" This is before we did any Survivor series stuff. It was right. kind of the the first production one for a customer, if you will. But yeah. Can we knock that out pretty quick? Yeah, yeah we can. We can do it for George. Is obviously a, a you know monument for the industry and everything he's done, and we'd love to build a car for him. Um, yeah, we'll do it. All right, cool. I told him we can do it by Columbus. All right, yeah, now we can do that. Not this, really knowing when Columbus was and <laughs> guys in Nashville, it was the middle of May. I pull up my phone, I'm like, shit, that's like seven weeks away. Yeah, well, George is going to get us the car in two weeks. So, so that leaves us like five weeks to build this thing. <laughs> I don't know if we can get parts well, in five weeks, but that kind of set like the course of how to do these because. That one, we had no choice but to kind of put the cart ahead of the horse. In years past, we never powder-coated chassis before installing them. It was always like a, a dry fit, and then you'd kind of like build your exhaust and do this and do that. But fortunately, that you know we had so many of those parts pre-engineered for the Camaro at that time that you didn't have the time to do that. Like The chassis was fully assembled in powder coat with a motor and transmission and a drive shaft in it fully painted and detailed that was in there for good inner fenders you know, widened inner fenders for you know a lower stance and a wider front tire were done a laser cut firewall was done the gauges were figured we have a very good like list of the components we know that work and it to be honest with you it wasn't that big of a push i mean it's not like we're pulling all-nighters you know that was a and we drove that car to columbus and he picked it up from here first. Drove, he drove it home, or that was he after drove Columbus. It at Columbus, he jumped in it and drove it back to Mississippi. Yeah, yeah that, that was that was that was the big, that was like a changing of the guard for how cars got delivered or picked up, I should say, because you know it used to be that the car would get loaded up in a trailer and you'd drive it out to the customer. 
be a big unveiling. And now, like the customers coming out to us, jumping in the car and taking it like wherever they may live. And like James is a great example of that. That that was a Camaro delivery, a survivor car that we got it done, drove it from here to Columbus, met James at Columbus. James drove it what Columbus, Texas, Texas to, to San Diego. To San Diego. Yep. Maiden voyage was uh 3,000 miles, um, made it all the way there. So the, you know, the survivor cars have totally like elevated our game as far as drivability, component selection. And, it, you know, what's interesting is that it becomes like the chassis is not ever a worrisome component. Like that is a, that's a component that is just dialed in that, you know, is tried and true. If you're going to have a problem somewhere along the way, it's going to be some fluke, you know, right. unpreventable issue. It could be, you know. But that's been the key to learning a lot of, not to give too many secrets away, but we we would never have done, implemented on the scale that we do a PWM fan module, do what we do with exhaust, do what we do with heat shields, sound deadening, and undercar dampening. We would never do some of the things that we do on an absolute, every single time basis now had it not been from the road trips the amount of survivor cars we built that these guys specifically were looking to i'm going to put fifteen thousand miles on this car you know so at that point your mind your mindset goes to like what can we implement from the oes and stuff and then now that goes regardless of the car whether it's survivor survivor series car or whatever it is those are just kind of standard things that you know were unheard of you know even six seven years ago Oh, hundred percent. And I think the, it, on the shop floor too, that presented like a big shift in how things were done and like, what's the new challenge? Because you've got a tremendously talented staff in the hot rod shop side that are, came from a background, even in this shop of building, like being on a project that's a multi-year showpiece that the challenge was in making the most elaborate shaped diffuser, you know, flexing your muscles as far as like what you can do with bending tubing or shaping sheet metal. And now like that, that was a difficult thing, I think for guys to get on board and understand and get behind now, like what we're doing now. And I think that, uh, the new challenge of getting things done efficiently, doing them once, doing them properly and seeing the end result of the of a super satisfied customer and a car that's driving like around the country all of a sudden became like the new challenge and guys started, I think really digging that and found like within that build process found like, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying a to new calling. Yeah. Almost. I'm trying to articulate like, yeah, what the new calling was that now it became like, you know, where am I going to put this, uh, power steering reservoir because like I know I need to keep it out of the way of heat I need to insulate it we know from experience that I you know I don't want to put any hard 90 degree bends I want this to have a nice gentle siphon feed and I want everything accessible I want the connections easy so if this car is on the road in New Mexico and there is a problem that the customer or the guy driving it can call and we can very easily 
diagnose the car, troubleshoot it from off-site. Yeah, you tell them that that ECU is mounted on the bottom of the cowl up above the HC box, you know, hidden away as yeah. far as you can possibly get. So all you got to do is take you take the windshield out, right? right? And once you get the windshield out, you pull the dash pad. But before you do that, you got to yank the steering column. And that passenger door has got to come off just so <laughs> yeah. you know. No, a perfect example of that is uh, the 71 GTO Judge that we had built. Yeah. Right? This was a extremely high-end show car one-off fabricated sheet metal everything i mean we built a hood for it. we built the bumpers the grills the front valance the rear valance the spoiler insanely elaborate interior it was like 1100 horsepower supercharged dart block wagner built motor and it just went on a 4000 mile road tour yeah yeah the customer he picked it up and we were shocked because i you know that was a car that it went to sema it went to a few local shows and it not that it couldn't do it, but it was. It's not the not the typical road trip car. Right, it was certainly wasn't a road trip car. So when the you know the customer said that's what he wanted to do, I was like, I mean, you can. It's it's a very expensive paint job, a lot of you know fabrication there, and uh, it's it was just such a great feeling knowing that like the car is going to be, car is going to get the job done, and after four thousand something miles, I mean, that car wasn't ever like shook out you know, a survivor car would. And, you know, I think customer, he was thrilled with it and put together just a small punch list of there's a little rattle here. This could seal up a little better. And I'd like to add this, which was like, you know, minuscule in comparison to a 32 Ford fendered three window that we'd have built 15 years ago that would have a punch list 10 miles long after and, driving it around the yeah, block. So it you wouldn't, know? wouldn't make it a mile and a half down yeah. the road back in the day. You know, after we got through the survivor stuff, I think, uh, we did more and more and more of them, and it got to the point where it's like you start running out of applications, you know, and it gets the kind of gets the wheels turning on like what comes next. And I think you know we all had the uh, the love for and grew up in the era of four by four like square body trucks and four by four Broncos and all that, and that stuff was cool. Like you know, as we were kids, and that's like that's the next progression of why continue to do what we're doing really well that we, that we can be like profitable. Let's try something different, you know, right. Yeah. That we're going to have to learn it. Right. Again. <laughs> so we, we came, we conquered, you know, onto the next thing. And, uh, again, it was like, where do you start with that? You can't, you're not, we're not bolting stuff onto, a you know, an existing chassis. So we got to clean slate that and, uh, went to work implementing the stuff that we learned on the spec series so we kind of took like the best of both worlds. I'd say like spec mentality when it came to designing the actual like perimeter frame and then kind of a little bit of the fast track mentality when it style and design and detail. Yeah. And yeah. ultimately came up with a really, really cool package that ended up becoming our RS4, which, uh, you know, I think that's, that's kind of the up and comer, the, uh, the RS4 being, uh, you know, our solid axle, front four by four applications and then uh you know in addition to that what do you do that's uh that's more your all around like for the like that that kind of scratches the itch for the guy that wants a really high-end four by four I and mean, we just saw one on our chassis that went through barrett jackson sold for you know a very nice blazer built by hoagie shine for 400k i mean and the truck's worth every penny of it but what do you do for the guy that wants something that he can do sort of a survivor build? He wants to 
swap a body on it, a, a square body, a C10 or something like that. And that's kind of the one that's the next up and comer. You know, that's our, our OEM level daily driver complete bolt on that we're calling our legend series chassis. And, uh, I think that's the thing that people are going to see more and more of. And I don't want to say that that's not what we're going to hang our hat on. That's, you know, but that's not our final trick, but that's, uh, that's certain. something coming next. Yeah, that's yeah, not available yet. At least let's <laughs> yeah. just wait. Preface like, yeah. that right this <laughs> yeah. very second that it's not available yet. Couple whiskeys in them and just throwing out. Absolutely, all. we'll get that knocked out <laughs> right away. For when you. it's ready to go, it will be done. Yep. Need a couple of them next week. Of course, <laughs> Phil's the one over here selling those things like hotcakes. You know, it's when uh, it's my cut. You know, when it's me, it's like you guys jump my ass. But you know, Phil's the like the a ninja you know <laughs> this, this could be yes, for another episode not at all. <laughs> <sighs> uh, no I get going back to the four-wheel drive stuff that was i guess our next progression like we saw another challenge um this industry is very trendy and it's everybody's always looking to do what hasn't been done looking to do what's next and you know we we're looking at all the cars out there and i had built a 76 Bronco when I was in high school with my dad and everybody you talk to, like everyone respects the four wheel drive stuff, but nobody did anything four wheel drive because there really wasn't the support on the, the suspension and chassis side. Not, not in our industry anyway. I mean, our, yeah, our industry get, takes it to a different level. So there that, are a few bolt on things, right. but like if, if you were trying to lift a, a C10 or a square body, you'd be pretty hard pressed to just even figure out how to do it lift right blocks. now. Come on. You, you take, Go to you take your ass right to AutoZone <laughs> and you just start stacking up those lift blocks. <laughs> but to, to do it correctly, we'll say. Right. Yeah, um, no option. So that was, I guess, our next idea, our next challenge, jump into the four-wheel drive stuff. Um, you know, look at, there was nothing out there, so we kind of had a clean slate and, again, wanted to build the best. So swung for the fences on, on partnering up with some of the uh, the big guys in the industry building axles and shocks and again wanted to build something that nobody else had done so set the engineering team out and designing a you know suspension and learned a lot along the way um got got a truck or two on the road and started dialing everything in and now that's probably a a quarter of our business is getting into all the four-wheel drive stuff just i strongly feel that's what's coming next for the hot rod and custom industry is, you know, guys well, are going to get into all the lifted C10s and it's already here. I mean, I'm looking at the sales of all the shops that are buying these. It's crazy to see kind of what we, you know, had envisioned what an arc might look like with the four wheel drive stuff and what it actually is and how fast some of these very traditional, I say traditional, not in the traditional hot rod film, but traditional guys in our industry of building pro touring muscle cars, you know, G machine, street machine, SEMA cars. I mean, hell, the Ring Brothers have gotten what, four or five RS4 chassis, you know, and I mean, it's everybody that's everybody in the industry is building a four-wheel drive something now. And that that's quick. I mean, that's way yeah. faster than we had ever imagined. I mean, I'd love to say we knew exactly what we were doing and how quick it was going to be, but I mean, this it, it blew my mind. You know, I knew four wheel drive was going to be a huge market, but how, how fast it would it be accepted just, by our group. Yeah, you, you just got to look at the at the trendsetters. I mean, you got 
keep your eye on guys like you know the rings are killing it with their blazers and all the four by four stuff that how are they going to get up in them probably Um, have an elevator yeah i think they have those oh the the elder elevator thing (laughs) if you you pull it up next to the staircase that you get on that little chair and it rides up the stairs and then i think they can just hop off oh that makes sense well, Mike's got those new knees yeah, with a lift kit in them. Yeah, so. Mike's got some badass new knees. He could probably jump in jump there. Jump up in there. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it, you're right. I mean, the four-wheel drive stuff has been uh, definitely the focus of the last, uh, I'd say, year, year and a half. We're still learning. I mean, we've learned a lot, but we're still learning every single day. It's, it's still every bit the foot on the gas, so to speak, with uh, new applications and new designs. I mean, we unfortunately for us unfortunately for the customers don't seem like we can figure out how to say no to whatever four-wheel drive i mean four door six door dump bed diesel no not diesel rear engine four-wheel drive widened yeah widened oh i want an extended cab but not like super extended but like kind of extended and then like that's 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 what makes us the roadster shop because the answer is generally yes you know, unless it's a terrible idea, and then we're going to tell you. But if you know, if you come in the door <laughs> yeah. and you've got something that's unique, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll figure it out we'll and make fi- it happen. Yeah, we'll figure it out, and that's despite you know how much we've grown and how busy we are. I think that's definitely one of our core values that that sets us aside. Um, generally, when you call, you know, any manufacturer, it's like to get like a wheel manufacturer to change a valve stem cap in this day and age, you know, you'd probably be shunned or have a hard, you'd be hard pressed to get it done. But I think that's, they're way smarter and making way more money. It's just, it's just a lot <laughs> just more fun. Uh, it's it's just there. a lot more fun it's, on it, our it's end. Always, well, I don't disagree yeah, with it. It's, I don't it's, disagree it's just, with it. Always I don't the, like having to do it, but I, I it's it, always, I the ch- it. it's always the challenge and seeing what kind of unique stuff, you know, you can put out there. And, and you learn from that too. Yeah, so I everything mean, leads to something else. And yeah, well, I mean that that we've obviously touched on a lot of different things. Um, good grief, we've done now four hours of the history of the roadster shop, and I I want to make sure that we've you know answered covered. some questions, covered some pe- some some thoughts maybe people had without being. A, I feel like you might have some questions lined up for us. I actually do have a few questions <laughs> to make sure. I, Fire away. Uh, what are some coming projects that you're particularly excited about? And this could be anything, a chassis project, maybe a home hobby project that you're working on. Everything in the shop is pretty damn cool and exciting. You're lucky to be in a, an environment like that where we're building all kinds of different stuff. But I think to me, probably the most exciting is going to be the uh, Grand National that we've got coming out here this spring. Um, I think Jerry will kind of jump on board with it, but this is going to be, uh, a, again, something different complete different genre style than we normally would do jumping into the 80s cars and doing it for a, a really good customer um gonna be 15 to 1700 horsepower <laughs> josh rolls his eyes um you know a big twin turbo wagner built uh motor um elaborate build everywhere i mean really really badass interior and gauges and display work that's going to be pretty uh, groundbreaking on this car that haven't seen anywhere else. Um, going to launch a new product line based off of that. But just a lot of really cool fabrication, big horsepower, focus on the drivability, um, 
one-off wheels by Greening Auto and just overall badass car. I mean, putting the thing on the ground and seeing it on the wheels and tires for the first time was probably one of the coolest things I've seen. Yeah, it's it's it, you're not used to seeing those cars like that. It's we we grew up seeing them the way they looked and they kind of sucked. I was never <laughs> I wasn't I'll be totally honest with you, I was never like a G body. You were wrong. Fan, I was wrong. And I'm willing to admit that because this car like I knew you could do something really cool with it and it grew on me so much and it's like absolutely become I'd say my favorite build to date. I think we we came off the momentum and the knowledge from building Dave's 55. That was a really wicked single turbo and uh, just wanted to do something that was like next level from that. And this car has got so much unique stuff going for it. And it really is the total package. I mean, it should make 1700 at the crank and uh, it's very refined. Like it's so refined to the point where this is a car that, we intend to drive cross country on road tours and it should be incredibly civilized while still being an absolute animal. And one of the neat things about it that Phil brought up is that it is, uh, it's launching a brand new product from the roadster shop. That's a little out of our norm because it's not really not like, chassis related, yeah, not, no welding, not, not chassis related. <laughs> you don't have to weld it in. Uh, it's, uh, you know, more on the electronic side and, uh, You'll see it when it comes out, but uh, it's just something that I'm very proud of. It was one of those cars that I was really sweating all the details, and everybody in the shop really got behind it. It's so relatable to the age bracket of everybody working on it, everybody designing parts for it, and uh, you kind of get an extra push on those cars when you've got the right customer behind them that kind of shares that that vision and that drive, and we've got a really, really kick-ass customer on that, he was local, so we'll get to enjoy the car as much as he will. So looking forward to that one, and it's coming out uh, here late spring, early summer. Pretty sweet. How about you, Josh? What are you looking forward to? What's exciting for you? Really excited about the next phase in the chassis shop. we got some pretty cool things coming down the line. I, I say cool. Nobody else would think it's cool. It's just more for organization and streamlining some processes. Um, I think it's going to help out our customers and try and get through this post-COVID supply chain issue and try to get these lead times down a little bit more. Try to make everything better for everybody involved. But as far as car related, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing the Sickfish Cuda come out. I think that's going to be a badass car. I'm with you. Yeah. No, you already picked, so you can't pick again. Can I, can I change mine? Nope. Okay. You already picked. <laughs> so I feel like we had this discussion already once. Before. A little bit. That's why I yeah. really wasn't expecting you to go to cars. But since you okay. went to cars, so we went to cars. You asked now. what projects, cars, et cetera, are going to be. Yeah. But it. because we'd already done cars, I thought you might have went to like maybe OBS chassis or some of the other things that we're doing. Hey, but you know what? We've already answered now. So that's the answers. <laughs> Reflecting back on the story of the Roadster Shop that it's been the last four plus hours, the story of the Roadster Shop. What are some of each of your craziest SEMA stories? Oh, goodness. That is a <laughs> softball if I've ever yeah. seen one. My craziest SEMA story is your craziest SEMA story. And uh, I don't know if we can necessarily, we, we can't go into that, right? So should I just like give a different story? Should I lie? It's going to be on to the, HBO. We should the, be fine. Should I lie to the listeners or? I'd be fine with you lying. Okay. Uh, 
So we're at the Cosmo one night. <laughs> so other than that story, my, I don't know if it's crazy or just an awesome story. Like the year we brought out the Rampage uh, Camaro, that was so surreal. Um, the car, just tremendous response on it and ended up winning the Gran Turismo award, which I think that was in, what year was it? Feels good. I'm terrible at the years, but. It was a long time yep. ago, and it's just getting ready to finally hit the video game deal, but it was... 2010? No, it was... 11? 15, 16? Something like that. But somewhere around there. It was just so bitching to go Google to that. It. Google it. it. I'm going to Google it. It's hard to, uh, hard to imagine that stuff now, like in these crazy COVID times, but going to that Sony party and walking in the door and social distortions, playing a live concert, and we're up on stage receiving this awesome award with all the guys from the shop and everybody's just, just drunk enough and having a great time and getting in the, getting in the elevator afterwards. And I'll never forget the picture of we've got like that badass steering wheel trophy and it's all the dudes from the shop that were involved in the build. And it's, it's just one of those like super memorable experiences, nothing wildly crazy like Josh's story that <laughs> at some point in time, it's going to come out. But uh, the Hangover yeah. Part Three. It's if you've seen if you've seen the movie The Hangover. It's got I, nothing. I, I promise this. you that movie sucks compared <laughs> to the to Josh's Vegas story. Yeah, that's gonna be a. Pay, I, pr- I think Mike Tyson episode. was even in, this, in it too at some point. Like, Ron Jeremy was. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and that's a fact. In the spirit of 2022, Josh, yeah. I'm gonna admit that I was wrong. That it was actually 2014 was okay. the year. Wow, I was pretty close. Yep. Eight years and it's just going to hit the video game. Takes a long time. I was excited for, I thought that would be something really cool because my kid could play the video game, but he wasn't, well, he was two years old at the time, so he wasn't playing video games. And I think he's going to outgrow video games before it hits hits the video game. It's coming. What was your uh, SEMA story? (sighs) I don't have one. It comes to mind. Really, there's nothing great ever happened to you in all the times that you've ever went to SEMA. There's been a lot. I, I don't know one that stands out more than the rest. Other than the one Josh's Josh's story was pretty good. I'll go ahead and tell my story. I'll tell it right now. My greatest SEMA story ever yeah. in Vegas. Oh, right? the, the the ride. The, the what? That's a clean story. The cab ride. Oh, the cab ride. Cab ride was good <laughs> oh, I didn't one. even think about the <laughs> yeah, cab ride. Phil, tell the cab ride. Uh, the now cab that I'm ride. reminding you, that has to be your favorite story. <laughs> yeah, that actually was one of the, the best. Chuck and Chip. Yeah, we were racing cabs <laughs> down... Whatever highway that is. All of Vegas. Basically. <laughs> I don't know if that's right for the podcast. I mean, it's not bad. We weren't but. driving. We were just <laughs> in the cab. This is a fucking cab. We're, there's no cabs anymore. Ev- I will Uber say now. everything that tell. we threw, every single thing that we threw went in the other cab. So there was no littering whatsoever. No. And everybody lived. Oh, yeah. Josh, nobody start got, the story. Yeah, You're a better storyteller. So this prime was, the pump for the other story. This was 10, 11, 12 years ago. Um, we were... Hanging out uh, Fremont Street one night after uh, a long day of SEMA show, doing the SEMA show thing. Stayed out late, probably had a couple of adult beverages or so. Time Came time to go home, so we were going to two separate hotels. Um, we both grabbed cabs at the same time. Unknowingly, unbeknownst to each other, we're both telling the cab drivers the same thing, that... If you can beat that other cab back to the hotel, uh, 
we'll give you a hundred dollars or two hundred or whatever we said. We we'll give you a hundred bucks. I think yeah, I think we said more than that. Right. In our chat. That's <laughs> probably why we won. <laughs> so and now we're both saying this at the same time. Also, we had no idea until a few minutes later that both of these cab drivers were friends with each other. They both knew each other. So we peel out at the same time. This is basically like uh, Days of Thunder. Yep. Right? We're going to go Days of Thunder. Days of Thunder. I, actually, I actually got scared and alarmed at like one point in time. Well, I like, thought we were being kidnapped yeah. until I realized that, oh, they took the bait. And they <laughs> so they know each other. They're also doing it for money. So now we are breaking every possible traffic law all the way from Fremont Street back to the Strip. Um, back roads, interstate. On the shoulder. On the shoulder, <laughs> passing in the emergency lane, too wide on a single wide exit ramp, on ramp. <laughs> and we are door to door. Robin's like, racing, baby. Touching each other, going down the interstate, <laughs> flying. I'm sure. There was, but when we couldn't touch each other, we were taking every single little coupon booklet that was in the back of the cab and just, just shucking them back and <laughs> forth between cabs. <laughs> Whatever was not nailed down in the back was seat getting was getting chunked. And uh, like, there's no competitive advantage between cabs. I mean, that is, it's like NASCAR. They regulate, <laughs> they regulate those things. I mean, they're on the gas, neck and neck. Nobody had more power than the other. Right. It was a, it was a driver's race. At that point. <laughs> it was an amazing night. It really was. But um, everybody lived. We kept our arms. I don't even think there was any swap in paint. How do you think electric cars will change the industry if they will change the industry? What's your thoughts? It's a tough one there. Yeah, kind of. To love it or hate it. Snuck that one in. You did. The love it or hate it thing. Um, for those who don't know, we've uh, we've jumped on that uh, that train a little bit. Um, I think it kind of bodes well with everything we've done, always trying to, you know, be at the beginning of trends and see where they go. You win some, you lose some. Um, cool concept. If you're driven in an electric car. It is quite different than a, a gas powered car. The the torque and like the instant torque at any RPM range is is pretty cool to have. I don't know that it's at the point yet where it can be viable for our industry with all the different batteries and motors. It's kind of still seems like it's in the early era of hot riding where you're going to junkyards and taking a Tesla motor or taking parts out of a, a Mustang Mach-E and, and adapting it into Ford, an old hot rod. Ford's on their way there. You know, I think they're paving the way to uh, to make it easy for the aftermarket you know, with their Illuminator. Yeah. I think the EV stuff's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to take over like they're planning or predicting. Absolutely not. It'll be a just part no, of the industry. It'll, It'll be something cool and different and unique. Um, we'll just kind of have to see where it goes. But I know we're excited to be a part of the the beginning stages of it. The chassis is obviously the the platform that everything needs to be built around. So if we can, you know, team up with the right manufacturers and have the right platform to to ease that into the market, we're more than happy to be a part of it. I agree. I think it's. A, I actually think it's a good thing for the industry. It's funny because you hear. You hear a lot of negatives on it, but I I see zero negatives about it because I think it drives both ends of the market because the guys who are chasing like the EV side of it are probably customers that wouldn't, wouldn't build have a gas yeah, wouldn't have previously been customers. So, I mean, I'm happy to to design something and build something for them. Am I like 
super passionate about putting an EV motor in a 70 Chevelle. That'd be a no. No. You know, I, I think that forever there, like, there's always going to be certain vehicles that just, they need a sound, they need a sound, they need a feel. But you know, if you're talking about like a Corvair or a, an early Beetle, I mean, absolutely. Like what, there's nothing fantastic about the drivetrain that, that was in those vehicles. So I think that's a really cool thing to, to swap. I don't think that the aftermarket's quite there yet to, uh, you know, deliver the, uh, you know, all the components to make a swap super easy, but I think it's, it's well on its way there. And, uh, I like the challenge of it. I, like Phil said, the, you know, you wouldn't be a hot rodder if you didn't like things that go fast. So if it hauls ass, like, yeah, sure. If you can drop that EV motor, like in something that it's going to improve its performance, I'm all for it, but I'm, I'm not going to get behind. You'll, you'll never convince me. I don't care no, you know, I, what I, you say. I agree to, with to you. stuff it in a muscle car. There's a, there's a, there's a place for everything. It's definitely going to, push technology that's going to trickle down even in in ice motors and stuff that we're going to be able to use. It's going to bring a whole new audience, a whole new group of manufacturers into the industry. All those are good things. There's places, like you said, different applications is going to make sense. Um, as much technology has progressed in gas-burning motors, I mean, with the LT5s and LT4s and Coyotes and all the crazy stuff that's out there, I mean, the Nova that we're building right now is going to be a big block. I mean, yeah. That's there's right. no that replacement can't for that displacement. They say, yeah, the only difficult thing is the timing room. The timing is the timing's tough because like right now, because Chev Chevy performance is at the absolute peak of like their, their performance, their technology, like you at LT five or LT four and a 10 speed automatic. It's, it's the best that it's ever been. I mean, like all the years together, you like 4L60 to 4L80, LS to LT. They're not like major. 6L, 8L. Yeah, they're, they're just numbers. <laughs> you know, there there haven't been major changes, but the LT4, LT5 and the 10-speed, it's it's like divine. You know, it's so good. So it's the greatest thing since 502. I mean, <laughs> I'd, I'd argue that. You know, the Ramjet or the... <laughs> but it's funny yeah, timing it's, because the the... Internal combustion stuff has just really gotten so damn good. Never been this good. Right. And then you're going to try to replace it already while yeah. it's just at the peak. All right. Let's see. Next question. I'd have this is the second to last question. So we were almost done. I know we're several whiskeys in. We got overserved again by the same person that overserved us on the first who's, episode. Who's pouring these things? I don't know. What are we, what are we drinking, anyways? Oh, we, we got another segment for okay. that. What are we drinking? That's a new segment. What are we drinking? <laughs> uh, if you could tell your younger selves, younger Jeremy, younger Phil, it'd be we lads. If you could tell your younger selves something at an earlier stage in the business, what would it be? I'd just keep it simple. I'd say op open your ears and close your mouth. Basically, just shut the fuck up. That'd be one way of saying it, but the polite way of saying it to, to my younger self would be to uh, open your ears and close your mouth. And I think uh, you know, reason for that is that when you start getting some accomplishments under your belt, maybe not that you necessarily get cocky, but you get you start getting a little confident. And uh, I think it's just you're best served to just always listen. That's that's extremely astute. You're not that Thank drunk you. after all. No. 
That's really this good. Is, yeah, this is actually just like corn syrup and water. <laughs> Food coloring. Yeah. Phil, what would you tell your younger Phil? I think I would tell myself to don't be afraid to fail and go for it more. Because the amount of things I've learned from the failures that I've had have really helped me progress significantly more than sitting there hemming and hawing and trying to figure out if I should do it, if I shouldn't, weighing out what all the outcomes could be. Um, a little bit of the the jump and figure out how to fly on your way down. That's a good one because that's you have to absorb a lot more like than you dish out to make it to the top, you know, to be to be successful, you have to be more of a punching bag than a puncher, I think. And, uh, to just absorb it and push through it. And that's, that's tough to do. It's not, it's not easy to, to deal with the stress and the adversity to get through everything to prevail. Those are really good. How about you, Josh? Yeah, what's what would you tell hey, but, hey, younger Josh? This might Side be note, hard. Younger, younger Josh is still pretty fucking old. And <laughs> yeah, this is a long time ago. So he might not remember like what to tell younger Josh. I would probably say worry about proving it to yourself versus proving it to anybody else. Um think that would be that I've something I've learned as I've gotten a little older now in my my late thirties, early forties. Um that it probably means more to prove to yourself that you can do something than all the other people that said you couldn't, because it really doesn't fucking matter if they said so that. It's, it's striving for self-satisfaction. Right. That's it's the most important thing. I've always, it's like, I think that's very important. And a lot of times, you know, we've, we've had a lot of wins, we've had a lot of losses. And a lot of times, you know, a, a customer will mention that a vehicle didn't win an award. And like, am I devastated about that? And kind of gauging my reaction. And I'll say, no. And I mean, it, like, I'm very satisfied. Like if I like the car, if I'm happy with it, then that's all, that's all I need. Last one. What is your proudest moment as a team? Dude, that's, that's a tough one. Cause it's every accomplishment we've ever had is a team accomplishment. You know, it's not Jeremy Gerber. It's not Phil Gerber. It's the entire team behind the roadster shop. So I mean, you can look back through the history of our careers and virtually every every win, everything that's, if it's a street machine of the year, if it's a trendsetter, you know, I think one that maybe stands out is uh, winning the SEMA business of the year one year, which that's, to me, that's probably the standout because that certainly, that's an award for everybody under this roof. Because I'm not the business, Phil's not the business, you're not the business, the the entire crew here is the business. And that was also a very cool thing for uh, you know, my dad to to be able to to witness and receive the award. And that was I think probably the last his last hurrah, you know, in his the great speech that he gave. Yeah. It and, really was. In serious. It, I remember that night. And that was uh that's probably it, I guess, if you had to hone in on on one. But uh, all in all, it's every accomplishment's a, a team accomplishment here. Uh, I think my proudest accomplishment is just where we're at today, what we've uh, done, the whole kind of the body of our work. Um, 
just being able to look through all the the chassis we have on order and seeing from you know the biggest names in the industry of you know them putting their trust in us to build the foundation from their car to the at home guy that's looking to do the same thing. I mean, he reaching out to us to to build the foundation of his car um, to the car build shop side and you know the insane stuff that we're able to to produce and just constantly uh, reinventing the wheel and then I, I think I'm honestly still amazed every time I look at a car we've built and just trying to explain all the details in it like we designed that from nothing like there was no dash there we designed it we machined it we made the gauges work we accomplished everything on it um, I think I'm still pretty blown away with just you know what we can actually accomplish here uh, and to ride off of what Jared said, just as a team that we've got everybody involved and building that team to to get the right people in place to really kind of accomplish almost the impossible. Yeah, that was really good. That was what I was going with. You're, yeah, you're an asshole. Damn, stole your note cards. Well, I'll just step it up from <laughs> there. I the proudest moment hasn't even come yet because oh. when we work together as a team, there's still so much more that we will accomplish. 100%. It really is. And that's, I mean, you're 100% right. I'm glad you started it off that way because there's not a thing that has been done that didn't require the collective group. Yeah, there's there's nothing that's been done that lands solely on one person's shoulders here. And now it's time for On the Gas. In this segment, we want to take some time to shout out an individual vendor, shop, or other company that's got their foot on the gas and doing great work and taking their projects and industry to the next level. Who do you think's been on the gas? And if you're talking about who's on the who, like who's not not an up and comer, but somebody we were who's, just at SEMA, just somebody a couple who's weeks here. Ago, who's on the if gas? You wanna, like somebody who stands out to me would be Jeremy Miranda from Miranda Built, not just because he's got a fucking awesome name. That's a shop. That's uh, putting out some really impressive stuff, and a uh, friend of mine, you know, a guy that I you know, keep in close contact with, and constantly impressed with the uh, with the work that he's doing and the volume that he's doing. You don't see a lot of shops putting out uh, two, three, four cars a year, and he's doing that. And he's doing it at a high level, and I think he he certainly has has his own spin on it, his own style, and like wiring and assembly details that are probably right there at the at the absolute top of the game and that's super impressive in this industry to like stand out doing something like that so i think he's to me he's he's one of the standouts when yeah, he, he, keeps, he keeps backing it up with more stuff i mean it'd been remember the nova from the from the grade eight when way back in the day and what's well, it's a good example of on the gas because literally He's a dude who debuted that car and has been on the throttle ever since. Ever yep. since. There's some pretty noteworthy stuff every single year and every time he delivers a car, it's it's a standout piece that you're gonna take notice of. Well, you can uh follow him on Instagram, on the old Instagram at at Miranda Built. Or on the World Wide Web at uh Mirandabilt.com. Mirandabilt.com. Go to his web page there on the internet. Also, if you follow Jeremy McGrath, you might recognize him. <laughs> Everybody that's listening right now, go Google search a picture of Jeremy Miranda and Jeremy McGrath. 
you'll catch the humor. You'll thank me later. Yeah. Well, it's actually been a uh, really good episode. We got through the history of the Roadster Shop. I think I answered a lot of questions that I know that we've been getting from viewers and listeners and other people that give a shit about us. Um, so like four people. <laughs> uh, thanks for listening to the Oil and Whiskey Podcast, an ironclad original. If you like the show, be sure to leave a rating and review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Roadster Shop. Go to our webpage, roadstershop.com. We'll see you again next week. Hey, how you doing? Brian Kane, host of the Mental Performance Daily Podcast here with you. And someone asked me recently, Kaner, how'd you go from 240 pounds to 180? Was it diet? Was it sleep? Did you change your workout routine? It was a little bit of all of that and mostly habits and consistency. That's why I love FitBod. FitBod's smart workout app creates a custom dynamic exercise program based on your goals, experience, and equipment. It varies your routines to avoid overtraining and keeps you on schedule so you can keep that calendar full and maintain those summer gains. Their elite algorithm uses custom data and analytics to scientifically build your best next workout and maximize your results in the least amount of time. FitBod workouts fit easily into your schedule, making your time the best time to work out. FitBod works equally as awesome on your iOS or Android device. The app is super easy to use with video tutorials to make learning new exercises a breeze. Let's keep that workout momentum going through getting personalized workouts from FitBod that get tougher as you do. Get 25% off your subscription or try out the app for free when you sign up now at fitbod.me mpd25. That's 25% off your subscription or try it free at fitbod.me mpd25.